Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, I am the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. How are you doing this morning? I'm I'm actually a little rested. Are you? Because I did the thi- the very thing I said I'm not good at doing yesterday. Passed out. I passed out. I took a nap. People don't know, man. When you get up very early in the morning to do the show, and it's like what five o'clock when I get up in the morning. Like before the before the sun. Yeah, before the sun. Oh I, my god. I'm up before the sun, calling a lazy bum and all that good stuff. And it's like by the time you get home, you start to you know calm down a little bit. But oftentimes, because you're so early in the morning, you could click off in a heartbeat. I did not realize that that could happen. Like I I don't know the last time. Yeah. I've taken a nap. I literally don't know. But then I started reading about it, and they were talking about the the psychological and health impacts that it could have on adults. That they there are healthcare professionals out there that are recommending that adults take at least a 20-minute power nap. Yes. And in Japan, and you know, the Japanese are, are very industrious and very, you know, always moving, going. Like downtown Tokyo is one of the most crowded, busiest streets in, in the world, yeah. right? Now you can find like sleep pods. Uh-huh. Na- well, they're nap pods. So you can basically check in, you know, in the, this little pod, which is weird because it's kind of spooky, like, I don't know, claustrophobic. Yep. But anyway, you can nap for like 20 minutes. I don't know how many yen, but yeah, they, they're, they're actually starting to encourage adult naps in the middle of downtown Tokyo. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I've seen like the things where they some people take a nap at work, those type there of things. Are, yeah, there are yeah. offices that are starting to sprout up that have actual nap rooms. Yeah. I would prefer them just let people work from home. It's like, that, yeah. Because it seems like it's like going that far with it. Right. It's basically, we're trying to incorporate home life and get the benefits of this, but right. we still want them at work. It's like, dude, if they were working from home, you wouldn't have to deal with that. Right. But COVID, COVID changed that. COVID did change that. It changed it. I mean, it really did shake up. For the longest time, as a software engineer, they would say, oh, we can't do that. We need you to be in office. They we need you to you do to come in? No, no. Well, no, 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 no. At, Initially, when I was working as a software engineer, our thing was like, well, why do we have to come into work? Most of the stuff is, you know, we don't need to be here to do our jobs. Right. Um, and they was like, well, no, we need you in the office and everything else. When COVID hits, all of these people basically flipped on a dime. So all of these workers and all of these staff and all of these companies that it was impossible for those people to work remotely. Pri- previously. Previously. Bam. Immediately working from home. Well, that's what they're saying out in Silicon Valley. I mean, we were talking to Ari Rastegar the other day, the, the real estate uh, broker, and in Silicon Valley, part of that there's an attrition of the need for office space because suddenly, like you said, to your point, that all these, you know, these big brains in Silicon Valley that were like, oh, you got to be here, you got to come to our huge Google campus. We have chefs and and you know ping pong tables and video games, right? Like home life, yeah. like you said, right? The the need for that is gone. Mm-hmm. So suddenly they're shutting down sections of all these different tech companies that had these, quote, perks yeah. to entice people 
to be at work for like 20 hours a day, yes. right? Including the nap rooms, including the chefs and what have you. And they've kind of done away, they're starting to do away with that. So like the smaller companies, I'm not necessarily talking about Google, but mm-hmm. the smaller tech companies out there are pretty much doing away with those perks. Yeah, it's like, thanks for the benefits. Let's get back to normal. Just go back to, they're just working from home. Like you said, these are software engineers. You know, these are people on the computer. Yeah. Why can't you be on the computer at home? Reach into the choir on this one. Right? Like that's, Reach into the choir. That. As long as the work gets done. Like I get we have to be in a studio. Yeah. Because there's expensive equipment that you can't. Well, and the show's better. I mean, like we did, um, we did fault lines for a while. I think like a year. From home? From home during COVID. And so, I mean, keep in mind, when we got the job, it was in the middle of the week. I remember Shane sounded distant sometimes. Yeah, because he, right, because he was in his own thing. He was either in South Dakota or something like that. And so, yeah, we we did this job um, remotely. And the numbers plummeted when we um, switched over. Really? Yeah. yeah I remember I, when I would uh, call in as a guest. Yeah. The There was obviously a, a, a time difference yes. between you and Shane and me, and we would accidentally all yeah. talk over each other. It took a while that. to figure out how to make that work. Yeah, but then eventually you got there. Oh yeah, we got there, but much better COVID, in the studio. Man, COVID, yeah. Ch- but changed the work dynamic for I think millions and millions and millions of people. So office real estate, if you're looking for office real estate, there's tons now, tons, tons. Yeah, let, let's get to headlines. There's a lot of news today. Yes, it is. Let's, yes, it is. Let's start domestically. Georgia Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has signed a bill that would ban books and any teachings that suggest the U.S. is inherently racist, among other race-related concepts. He says these bills ensure all of our state and nation's history is taught accurately because here in Georgia, our classrooms will not be pawns of those who want to indoctrinate our kids with their partisan political agendas. Now, Kemp said that at the bill signing ceremony yesterday. And some sad news, Willie Joseph Cancel, a 22-year-old employee of a U.S. private military contractor has been killed in Ukraine, according to media reports. His mother, Rebecca Cabrera, told CNN that the company had sent him to fight alongside the Ukrainian forces and paid him to do that. Quote, he wanted to go over there because he believed in what Ukraine was fighting for and he wanted to be part of it, to contain it. So it didn't come here. And that maybe our American soldiers wouldn't have to be involved in it. That's from his mother. And overseas, a senior U.S. military officer has identified China as a, quote, focal point for the Navy, citing the, quote, phenomenal growth of Beijing's military and its ambitious goals for the years ahead. Speaking at an event hosted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, on Thursday, Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday called for, quote, a whole of government approach to deterring China, arguing the country is, quote, challenging us through all instruments of their national power. And the prime minister of the Solomon Islands has accused Australia of hypocrisy on Friday, saying that 
Canberra should have been more transparent with other Pacific nations when signing the AUKUS pact before criticizing the new Honera-Beijing security deal of secrecy. Then at least 42 people were injured in recent clashes near Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. That, uh, the Palestinian Red Crescent has now reported that this morning, noting that 22 of those had injuries that required hospitalization. Red Crescent expects more clashes to occur in Jerusalem and the West Bank today because it's the last Friday of Ramadan. Israeli police said that order has been restored after these morning clashes and the worshipers can now enter Temple Mount freely. And in tech news, Donald Trump has marked a glorious comeback on social media by posting on his own app, Truth Social, for the first time. The ex-president shared a picture of him holding a cell phone with his Mar-a-Lago estate in the background. And I was going to say tweeted, but it wasn't tweeted. He truthed? <laughs> right, truth. He truthed? He doesn't even say, all right, all right, truthed it. He, he truthed, truthed it. it. He put Man, out. think about the, uh, the gravity of Twitter <laughs> where it becomes a verb. It is. I mean, it's like Google, Google it. Google it, yeah. yeah. So truth social, what do you say? You truthed it? I don't think you say anything yet because I don't know how long yeah. that thing is going to last. I don't think he's <laughs> worked it out. Um, let's just go with he truthed out. Truthed it. Yeah. He truthed out. I'm back. Hashtag Kofi Fee. So a little bit of humor there. That's good. We can all do with a little bit of humor. I'm going to make a prediction. Go for Trump it. will be back on Twitter. Oh, for sure. <laughs> that's right. For sure. I mean, that's Twitter has been around for more than a decade. Everybody is on Twitter. Yeah. Although... Some of us wish we didn't have to be on Twitter. Right. But that's where all the other people are. So you kind of have to be there when you work in media. He's definitely going to go back there He'll because be back. he wants eyes. He needs the eyes. Yes. So He'll be back. He'll be back. Like everyone that's like, oh, I'm giving up, giving up coffee. <laughs> Get out of here. All right. In Earth and Science News, it seems that while the blue whale may currently be the largest creature on Earth, it can no longer be called the biggest animal of all time. Scientists have unearthed the remains of an ancient giant. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to probably not I'm gonna try to not butcher this. Uh-oh. Ichthyosaur. Ichthyosaur. Nailed it. Ichthyosaur. Uh, which they claim could be the largest animal that ever lived on our planet. And it's a huge marine creature that was identified from fossils representing three individuals. All right, so they pieced it together, different fossils, representing three individuals that included massive teeth and vertebrae. The fossils were dug out of rocks at an altitude. All right, I know that doesn't make sense sometimes when you say altitude and we're talking about marine life, but you know, the water has receded right. over the millions and millions and millions of years. Uh, this stuff was discovered in rocks up about 9,000 feet or 2,700 meters in the Swiss Alps. That gives you the idea of what the world used to look like. Isn't that amazing? Like, it's hard to fathom that... The at Swiss one, Alps. Yeah. We're underwater. We're underwater. But yeah, I mean, the, the world is is forever changing. It's not a static place, obviously, we know. No, it just warming. feels that way to us. 
Yeah, because we're moving much... The Earth is moving... We're slow, and the planet changes even slower. Then in business news, Elon Musk has sold about $4 billion bucks worth of Tesla shares since securing that $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. According to the SEC filings published on Thursday, the Tesla CEO offloaded 4.4 million shares on April 26th and 27th. He now just holds, just barely, holds over 168 million shares of Tesla via his trust. Then this day in history, 1945, a day before committing suicide, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun get married. A short marriage. Applause. I mean, you're... Congratulations. I mean, wasn't it murder-suicide? Pretty much. So it's like... Yeah. He took the pill, he shot himself in the face. I guess. I mean, unless, like we discussed, he's, you know, in Argentina and he's like 105. (laughs) Eating McDonald's or something. With the mustache. With the mustache. And then in 1968, the musical Hair hits Broadway. Not into musicals, so... (laughs) Right. Right. So there's that. 1975, Hubert, Hubert Van S. takes the famous picture of a helicopter airlift from the Saigon rooftop. Very famous picture. Yes. 1992, deadly riots erupt in Los Angeles. Now, I remember that and saw them firsthand. Terrifying. That's right. You lived there. Born and raised. And I was, you know, like a teeny bopper in 1992. Wow. And, and our school was locked down. Because uh, we were just a few miles outside of where these riots erupted. Um, a lot of stuff that was happening at that time. It was very scary. You could see smoke everywhere. You could, it, it just, the sky. And back then we had a lot more pollution than there is now. But it was it was a scary time, This around this time, 1992. And in 1997, the Chemical Weapons Convention becomes effective. Wow, only 1997. That's going to do it for your headlines on Friday April 29th. All righty, let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. There was a lot of news yesterday, and I think that news somewhat dovetails. In one sense, there was a ironically named Disinformation Governance Board. There's that. Also, there's the Lynn Lease Bill that basically passed the House of Representatives yesterday with some ungodly vote tally. All Democrats backing it. I think it was 10 Republicans that pushed back against it, but basically 400 and something um, uh, um, to like 10. And you also have this situation where Biden is trying to give $33 billion to a losing war effort in Ukraine. Now, what is the intersection of all these things? I want to go back for a moment 
to make my point, NBC News, and this is the article, in break with the past, the U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia. All right. It was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. U.S. officials said there were indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents in Ukraine. President Joe Biden later said it publicly, but three officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence that Russia has bought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. They said the U.S. released information purely for deterrence. Let's keep going. Here's another one. Multiple U.S. officials acknowledge that the U.S. has used information as a weapon even when the confidence in the accuracy of the information wasn't high. Sometimes it was used low-confidence information for a deterrent effect, as with the chemical weapons, and at times, official put it, to get into Putin's head. Some officials believe, however, that trying to do so is a meaningless exercise because he will do what he will regardless. Think about that for the moment. The idea that you can write that with a, with a straight face, we're going to get into Putin's head. Putin is running a war effort. He knows as a flat fact that you are basically lying. Why would your lies affect the decisions that he is making on the ground that is in the interest of Russia? It makes no sense. Let's keep going. Here's another one. Right here. Last week, U.S. officials told reporters they had intelligence suggesting Putin is being misled by his own advisors who are afraid to tell him the truth. But when Biden was asked about the disclosure later in the day, after it made headlines around the globe, he was less than definitive. To the degree which Putin is isolated or relying on flawed information can't be verified. They just made it up. How many ways can you say lie without just calling it a lie? How many euphemisms can you use instead of just saying they lied? Here's another one. Likewise, a charge that Russia had turned to China for potential military help lacked hard evidence, a European official and two U.S. officials said. They just made it up. The U.S. officials said there was no indications China is considering providing weapons to Russia. They just made it up. This is an entire article of them just making it up. And whatever the responsibility or whatever the Biden administration wants to do in regards to this voluminous lying to the public and to the rest of the world on this particular issue, it is secondary to the point that media carried all of it. And they carried all of it uncritically. One story after the next a lie. And even in this case, they're not even calling it lies. They're framing it as if this is a bold strategy in information warfare, lying voluminously to the American public. Lying. They find all sorts of euphemisms instead of just saying the government has been lying to the public and we have been carrying those lies voluminously and uncritically, triumphantly even attesting to the fact that they've been lying. All right. Fast forward. Fast forward. It comes out that a disinformation governance board, basically a ministry of truth, is being created by the Biden administration. A ministry of truth. And it's going to be headed by a dingbat named Nina Jakowitz. Now, this is the same person who wrote back to the laptop from hell, apparently. Biden notes 50 former national security executives and five former CIA heads believe that the laptop is Russian influence operation. Trump says, Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, keep in mind that story that she's talking about with these 50 non-existent national security people. That story was true. That story was true. So let me get this straight. The dingbat that's on Twitter saying that the story is false, even to the point where they locked the New York Post in Twitter jail for it, is going to be the one that heads up the disinformation governance board. So the person who flagrantly put out disinformation is going to head the board. Let's be very clear. 
She is failing upward. That is not a bug. That is a feature. Look, it is very important to find people with low ethics and who would basically say whatever you need them to say for a dollar. And in the very Nina case, you have the situation where it is very valuable. It is a lucrative profession to get it wrong and to get it wrong fabulously and constantly. You need a wrong answer. That person is willing to give the wrong answer and you're willing to compensate them for that wrong answer on cue. That is the person who they're putting ahead of this organization. She was also part of the Wilson Center, advised the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry as part of the Fulbright Policy Fellowship and oversaw Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute. Here's my question. Here's my question. When the U.S. government is putting out a voluminous amount of lies in the way that they have and attest to it that they've been putting out a voluminous amount of lies, and when you get the media that has uncritically Carry those lies, not doing their job to explain context and give people an understanding of the world that would allow them to make a decision that is in their best and rational interest. Not that. We don't need that right now. What we need is just propaganda to the public. We need to lie to the public to get them in a certain mindset. Will this disinformation governance board in any way have challenged the disinformation that was coming out of the U.S. government? Understand what I'm asking you. They're setting up a board, supposedly, to deal with issues of disinformation. However, you've just admitted that over the course of the last several months, I would say over the course of decades, you have been lying voluminously to the American public. Will the disinformation board challenge the disinformation coming out of the U.S. government? And will it challenge the disinformation being carried by the U.S. media? And if the answer is no, then what is the point of the disinformation board? It seems that since you've eliminated basically every other source of secondary information in order to challenge the narratives that are basically being put out, then what is the point of this board? Think about what I'm saying for the moment. You've eliminated RT. You've tried to eliminate Sputnik. We are small outlets, all things being equal. You basically have the entire media space going with one very specific narrative. So what on earth is this board going to be doing? Your own government has been lying to you in mass. There's that. You've eliminated all of the sources of information that could challenge the fact or bring up the fact that the government has been lying in mass. So there's that. And now after eliminating all of those sources, you add in a board to what? Justify the lying that you've basically been doing to the American public? Because after all, if you're not going to challenge those lies, which you are not. There's none of these stories, all of which were wrong, that this board would have ever said anything bad about. If anything, it would have just co-signed it either with silence or in word. That's a problem. I don't think people realize how dystopian this is. Add to this $33 billion going for a losing war in Ukraine. Think about what you could do with that money. I don't know how much it takes to end homelessness or poverty, but I tell you this, $33 $33 billion will go a long way for it as opposed to a losing war effort. On top of that, the Lend-Lease program that has just passed the House of Representatives, do you realize the gravity of this? All things being equal, this is a literal proxy war with Russia at this point. I just saw, going to get water, that a U.S. service member has basically been killed in Ukraine fighting alongside that losing war in Ukraine. Is there anything that this disinformation board or that fake media carrying the lies of the U.S. government, basically debasing themselves in regards to their philosophical and ethical responsibilities to the American public and to their constituents. Is there any situation where this board 
or that media would challenge whether or not we should be given $33 billion to a losing war. None of them believe that Ukraine is going to win that war. None of them are going to give you an honest contextual version of history in regards to how do we get to this particular point and give you this ability to make a rational choice on whether or not you want to go in this particular direction. Will the disinformation board ever challenge any of this stuff? What if it does need to be challenged? Should we be okay with us getting closer and closer to the brink of oblivion? And with a president that can't even get the words out when he's trying to explain this stuff. It just seems to be altogether not there. We need to really accommodate the gravity of what these guys are doing as they get us closer and closer. $33 billion. Are you insane? And ultimately, the passive Lindley's program, how do they expect Ukraine to pay that money back? We're giving them like $7 billion a month, give or take. How do we expect them to pay that Back. It is an extraordinary thing that these guys are doing this. It is a proxy war by definition with another nuclear powered nation. You would need at this moment the media to be able to say that. You would need a media to be able to say that, co signed by a quote unquote governance board that could back that media. None of that is ever going to happen. In fact, the opposite is going to happen. That governance board is going to create a situation that is going to make it completely and utterly impossible basically challenge all of this stuff, even though these are the things that definitely need to be challenged at this moment, considering the gravity of events that could take place. We're at the brink of oblivion and we're getting closer and closer and closer. What they realize is this economic war isn't working. I was watching as I was reading here. I mean, as, as I was coming here, driving here, Russia's revenues have increased, not gone down because many of these other nations, um, it's not that the volume of the gas that they've been selling has increased. It's more so the price of that has gone up. So in an economic war that was supposed to basically destroy Russia, the ruble is becoming this kind of international currency, not to mention they've been able to increase the coffers. This isn't going according to plan. And with them understanding this is not going according to plan, with inflation rising in all of these Western countries, creating a certain degree of political instability in those countries that will get worse, mark my words. It seems that they're getting closer and closer to leaning more and more on the issue of military with propaganda in order to coax those various publics into getting that much or supporting the governments as they do this. Is Ukraine really worth this to you? The level of inflation, the amount you're going to pay for food, and put that in the context of all of the things that need to get done in your various countries. Is it really worth that much? And more importantly, should you have a media that can have that conversation, that can explain that particular case? And do you really need a disinformation board under the guise of preventing disinformation, even though under no circumstance would they have ever challenged any of the disinformation that was basically being put out? I am making the point that we're creating a device, an edifice that would in one sense prevent real and legitimate stories from coming out that can challenge the government. And in another sense, creating a body to basically, quote unquote, debunk real stuff that could challenge these particular narratives. Um, Manila, this is disturbing on so many levels. A, we're giving $33 billion to Ukraine. There's that. That's disturbing in and of itself. The Lend-Lease bill, I'm sorry, is extremely disturbing considering the context of when that was first used in the Second World War. And it basically preceded us getting into that war. And this, and then it's like, the media and everything else has created the system where you can't even 
have that conversation in no, earnest. Shut it down. Shut it down. I mean, how weird is that? How I, dare you think and speak for yourself? That is, I think, the business model for all mainstream media right, right now. Yeah. And it had been coming this way for years. I mean, I watched, I mean, I've been in the media industry for close to 20 years and I've watched this slow creep. It's like mission creep. Yeah. It just, and one day you wake up and it's just there. And it's just, you hit this wall where, you know, I mean, it started, I would say it started out with the PC culture, right? Like you can't say certain things. I mean, I'm not talking about horrible stuff like the N-word. I mean, like little things, like we're, we're at the point where you can't say he, she, right? Yeah. So, but that right. is, that is kind of like, I would say you're, you're grooming the culture to go a certain way. And it started out, I would say in the 90s with the whole PC culture, right? Of understanding the can- cancel culture started a long time ago. Right. It was just under a different form and different guise. And it just, it looked different than it does today. Today is very obvious. Back then, it was just a little bit of coercion, like, oh, you shouldn't say that. That's not very nice. That's a really good point. And it, it's taken 25 years, but we're here now. And we've accepted, you know, it went from PC to completely like, like, oh, you called me the wrong pronoun. Yes. It's like, I didn't mean to. I just, th- sorry, that's my lexicon. It's like, like, you're, it's like you're transphobic for right. not so-and-so. Right. It's like, are you serious? So they canceled, what's her name? The one that wrote, what is it, Harry Potter or something like right. that? How stupid Jeez. is that? Yeah. It's just insane. Right. I mean, that's just where we're at. And the media had a huge role in that. And I, again, I've worked in the media in the bulk of that time where I watched this kind of cancel culture expand and it became part of our normal Western society to the point that the media itself cancels people and stops people from thinking. And then they've all hoarded together in this one big gang. And, and I mean, it used to be that the media wanted you to, to think outside the box, look around, see for yourself, read different articles. But now it's all the same tropes, all the same points, all the same everything, the same drumbeat of war. We are all marching and goose-stepping together into war. Who is next? What country is next? World domination. That is where the media is at today. And that is a terrifying thing. And anybody else that speaks outside that narrative, they're going going down. Shut down. So Tucker Carlson, um, Tulsi Gabbard, apparently a Russian plant, serving in the military. She's a a treasonous Russian asset. Yeah. You are so right on that. I'm glad you made that point because that's a really good point. Bring that up with Peter Coffin. Because that's that slow move where you can't necessarily perceive it in the beginning, but give it 20 years. A frog in a boiling pot. Yeah. Right? That's what it is. That's what it is. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we're coming back with the one and only Scott Ritter. Not going to want to miss this conversation. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And one of the most disturbing things, disturbing may not necessarily be the right word for it, but definitely ill-conceived. Biden is trying to send $33 billion to Ukraine. 
Biden has asked Congress for an additional $33 billion in order to prop up the war effort. Right here, the administration is requesting $20.4 billion in additional security and military assistance for Ukraine and the U.S. effort to strengthen European security and cooperation with our NATO allies, um, the White House said in his statement. On top of that, and apparently in somewhat of a separate bid, these guys have also passed a Lend-Lease program that at this point is waiting for the president to sign. To have a conversation about this and events that are taking place on the ground in Ukraine, we're joined with the one and only voice of truth, Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. Scott, how you doing this morning, my man? Doing all right? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you guys? So far, so good. Better that you're with us. Um, I wanted to get your take on the $33 billion that Biden is basically trying to send. And I want you to add to that this Lend-Lease program that they basically passed in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And they basically passed it by overwhelming numbers. I think it was only 10 people that basically voted against um, the plan. Talk about this for a minute. I mean, just how do you view this? I mean, this was the thing that basically preceded us getting into the war, um, the Second World War. What is your take on this? Well, first of all, we have to look at the, the specific timing of this. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you take a look at the flow of U.S. military assistance to Ukraine, um, starting in the, in the months before the Russian incursion, uh, you'll see that we we started with light weapons, javelin missiles, things of that nature. And now that the, we're two months into this conflict, we're coming in with the heavy weapons. Um, normally, that would be reversed. Uh, if we thought that Ukraine was going to be fighting a, a two-plus-month conflict with Russia, uh, we would have started with the heavy weapons um, to ensure that they have received these weapons uh, and are able to absorb these weapons and uh, disseminate these weapons on the battlefield in a in a manner which directly impacts uh, you know ground combat conditions. Um, that didn't happen, and, and and the reason why is we just go back to the testimony of General Miley before Congress in the lead up to the war, where he said uh, that he fully expected Russia to take Kiev in seventy two hours. Wow. Um, the U.S. The U.S. never thought that uh, Ukraine was going to last this long. Uh, and Ukraine's uh, ability to uh, sustain their defense has created a situation where the United States is now political, uh, in, a, in a political nightmare of its own creation. Uh, we have a situation where NATO now is struggling to, uh, to, to respond to the Russian action, and the United States is confronted on a daily basis by statements from President Zelensky, uh, where he says, you know, you need to send me more, send me more. So we're, we're, we're signing off on a $33 billion plus, it's going to be more by the time this is done, military assistance package um, that will literally have no impact on the battlefield. These weapons will not make it to the front line. Uh, this is purely a political exercise to provide political cover for the inevitable defeat of the Ukrainian military and to also provide some sort of um, meat, I guess, to the menu that's being put out there by many analysts now and many officials who say that the goal of the United States now is to bleed Russia white in Ukraine and that by providing these weapons to Ukraine, we're giving them the ability to kill more Russians, to destroy more Russian equipment, and to lead to the strategic defeat of Russia. But this is poli this is political rhetoric, and I don't believe it has anything to, to do with the actual facts on the ground. The facts on the ground is Russia is winning this war, 
and these weapons will not make it to the battlefield in any um, meaningful numbers. I've heard that. Let me get your speculation on this. That it is. I heard that the West, or I've heard speculation that the West understands that Ukraine is basically going to lose this, and that the reason that the weapons are being sent is in order to kind of bolster Eastern Ukraine with the idea that they're going to lose the Donbass, they're going to use Marpol. Certain parts of Ukraine are basically going to get balkanized at the end of the war. But all things been equal that, let's say, eastern Ukraine gets stabilized with the number of weapons and money and all of this other stuff that's going into um, this campaign. What's your take on that? I mean, do you think there's a legitimacy to that particular conversation? Because I think you even acknowledge yourself. There's no way these weapons are going to get to the Donbass region. These are not going to the east. And so it's like if they're – I'm sorry. I think I transposed it. Basically, those weapons are going to end up in the west. And so the question is, if those weapons can't make it to the east, which is the main theater of the conflict, is it just that they're there in order to bolster whatever is remaining of Ukraine at the end of this particular conflict? Well, when you listen to the words of some former generals and, um, and, and current officials, they are anticipating that this conflict uh, will drag on for years. Um, and so, yes, their, their goal is to provide weapons um, to Ukraine um, with the idea of creating a new Ukrainian military that's capable of holding the Russians at the Dnieper River line, that is the, 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 the main river that uh, separates eastern and southern Ukraine from the rest of Ukraine. There are two problems with this. One, uh, that's not how the Ukrainians see it. <laughs> Ukrainians are fighting a life-and-death battle in the east. And uh, the, the, the ground commanders in the east are saying, we need tanks, artillery, and aircraft now, or 60,000 of us are going to die. And Zelensky has said he's not going to let those 60,000 troops die without a fight. And so, you know, the United States, you know, is, is providing, you know, 90 uh, M777 uh, 155-millimeter howitzers, for instance. 45 of those apparently are already in Ukraine. Uh, let's see where the Ukrainian government uh, takes these howitzers. Are they simply going to put them in warehouses or put them in barracks in the in the West? Or, as I believe, they're going to try and uh, get those things over to the East. And in doing so, uh, they're going to be destroyed, um, either in, you know, inter interim warehouses on the road. Uh, they have to be driven by trucks. Um, or once they arrive in a forward area, uh, they'll be identified and eliminated immediately by you know, by Russian um, artillery strikes. So, you know, the Ukrainians have their vision of what's going on, and the West has its vision of what's going on, and um, never the two shall meet. Now, Scott, I want to get your thoughts on the young former Marine who was just identified as uh, killed in Ukraine today, Willie Joseph Cancel. He was just 22 years old, former U.S. Marine. Uh, he was apparently eager to volunteer uh, in Ukraine. Now his wife uh, is a widow at 22, 23 years old. They've got a little baby boy. Uh, but he was working as a private U.S. military contractor, right? So do you remember at the start of this whole thing, uh, you were on my show along with Mike Maloof, and you were, we remember President Biden saying that, you know, if this were to happen, if Vladimir Putin went into Ukraine, if this, if that, and if an American were to ever be harmed, there would be swift and quick, direct consequences, right, of great magnitude. 
So that suggests to me that President Biden knew that this was in the offing. And it suggests that he knew American lives would be in Ukraine. But now that someone has been identified as a dead American, how is Biden going to respond to that? Well, I, I think Biden's, uh, uh, you know, words uh, early on when we talked dealt more with, um, you know, official Americans, American soldiers, et cetera, and that if uh, Russia were to attack, for instance, uh, American facilities uh, in Poland and uh, American troops were harmed, then, then that would be the swift. But the State Department has made it clear. The, the, the fact is, the State Department has come out and said um, that, that, that it discourages Americans going into, uh, into Ukraine and that, um, you know, and depending on how this is done, it could actually be a violation of a U.S. law. Look, at, this, is, this is, you know, a, a, a tragic story. But, you know, let's, let's look at this guy. I mean, he's 22 years old. He enlisted at 18. Uh, but he didn't go straight from the Marine Corps to this PMC. He was, you know, he was working as a corrections officer in Tennessee, uh, which means he had gone through a period of training and employment. So he he has served a, a minimal tour. I mean, we're talking, you know, what, two, three years in the Marine Corps. Uh, I don't believe he was combat arms. I don't think he saw combat. Uh, the photographs I've seen show that he was doing a peacetime tour in Japan. Um, and. You know, and so he comes back, and he's un- he's he's unemployable. He can't go out and get a real job, so he becomes a, a prison guard, and um, and that's a very unset that's unsatisfactory work. And so he's lured away by a, a private military contractor, uh, and you know it, who's offering him pay. Now is this? It's a U.S. PMC, but are they is are they working on behalf of the Ukrainian government? I mean, who's bankrolling this? Uh, because. You know, normally PMCs hire people because they're contracted by the State Department, by the CIA, by the Department of Defense. And so they've got a big you know, pile of money to bring people in to do things like diplomatic security or secure facilities. This guy's being brought in to serve in a frontline combat unit. Uh, who's, who's, who's paying for this? Um, you know, that's that's a, a great question. And and look at look at it. He is not a combat veteran. He is not a combat operative. He's a prison guard. He's gotten fat and soft, and now he got sent over there uh, into a war he doesn't understand, doesn't comprehend, fighting next to people he hasn't trained with, uh, fighting in support of a cause he doesn't understand. If you're trying to tell me that a 22-year-old uh, you know, junior enlisted Marine serving as a prison guard in Tennessee has a fundamental comprehension of the geopolitical realities uh, that, that attend to the Russian military incursion into Ukraine, um, I'd like to know what you're smoking, because he doesn't. He went over there because he was looking for glory, because he hadn't experienced combat, because he wanted to kill people, and he got killed instead. And that's going to be the fate of every single American that goes over to fight in Ukraine. You are not going over as part of a, uh, of a formal military team. This isn't your old Army days or Marine days. You're going to be fighting next to strangers most of whom have zero combat experience and have received minimal training. They don't know how to fight individually or as a team, and they're going up against one of the most dangerous military organizations in the world that's equipped with artillery that doesn't give a damn about your ideals. And that's how this guy died. They can't find his body because his body no longer exists. I hate to be brutal, but that's what happens when you get hit by a Russian artillery barrage. 
Gosh, you're right. It, it's important to point out that these are not, you know, retired soft vets from the U.S. going over there. These, you know, 36, 38, 40-year-old, 45-year-old trained American killers. It's not that that's going over there. What we're hearing about the, the foreign fighters is what we can refer to them as, right? The, the UK kid, these mercenaries that have never picked up a gun before in their life, their lives ever, right? And they're going over there because they think this is some call of duty stuff that it's going to be the same as playing on their PlayStation. And then they get over there and realize they can't leave. The UK guy that was captured by the Russian military, he locked out. He's still alive. And he, you know, sang like a canary that the Ukrainian military took his passport, took, I mean, literally left him no options to leave. He wanted to leave after, I don't know, two, three weeks. And he stuck there until, I, I would say lucky for him that the Russian military captured him or else he might have met the same fate as this young American. No, look at this. You know, you have a bunch of people today that um, have fallen in love with war by watching you know, this glorified version of, um, you know, Black Hawk Down and The Outpost and whatever Iraqi movie ends up coming out that defines the Iraq experience. Um, you know, low intensity conflict where, you know, the infantry is heroic, uh, the, the heroism of one man can stand off, you know, any number of bad guys coming in. And they, 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 they do live action role play. These guys go out and buy um, you know, equipment and gear, and they go out and they play soldier in the woods. And they think that by watching a movie, playing Call of Duty on the computer, and dressing up like a, like a live-action hero, that they are suddenly imbued with some innate capability to close with and destroy the enemy through firepower maneuver. They're not. These, 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 these role players are going over there and learning the hard way that um, war is hell. And... Um, and they're going to go straight to hell because they have no chance in hell of prevailing on the battlefield. Um, Scott, I want to get into, and I'll just read it. This was basically what Putin said the other day, talking about lightning speed response, um, if indeed there were, let's say, interventions into the conflict. And look, I would argue that the amount of weapons and everything else that's being sent counts as an intervention. But let's, right here, quote, if someone decides to intervene in the ongoing events from outside and create unacceptable strategic threats to us, they should know that our response to those oncoming blows will be swift and lightning fast. We have the tools to do this, tools that no one except us can brag about, but we're not going to brag. We're going to use them if need arises. Now, a lot of this has to do with these kind of I think some people who are losing their minds who are basically saying that Ukraine should expand that war into Russia and to basically use the weapon systems that are being sent to the country in order to do that. Can you give me this, and I guess, an analysis from your standpoint on the consequences if those attacks into Russia itself started to expand um, in the way that these people or some of these people who are in the safety of their homes, either in the U.S. or the U.K., are basically pushing Ukraine to do? First thing I'm going to say is that uh, what Putin is talking about is not nuclear weapons. No, there's been a lot of panic in the uh, mainstream media. Oh my God, he's rattling the nuclear saber. No, uh, he said that weapons only we possess. Hypersonic. Um, so he's talking about hypersonic weapons. He's talking about the thousands of um, KH-101 Kinzhal missiles that uh, Russia has in its inventory, uh, and which are currently targeted. Um, at every major installation um, in, in the periphery of the Ukrainian uh, 
um, the theater of operations. Um, he's also talking about um, taking down uh, what, what what they call Ukrainian decision-making centers. Um, you know, it's ironic in the in, in Desert Storm. You know, I, I was part of the people to plan the, uh, the the air campaign and executed it. Um, day one, we took out every command and control center we could identify. Uh, we tried to kill Saddam Hussein repeatedly during the conflict. Um, we tried to kill every single senior Iraqi leader repeatedly during the conflict. These are command and control. When we found them, we hit them. Um, you know what Russia hasn't done? Russia hasn't hit a singer, single major decision-making center in Ukraine. He's letting Zelensky and, and, and the parliament and everybody else just sit there and do what they need to do uh, to include negotiating with the United States for $33 billion with the military assistance. This is the kind of thing that normally you would shut down, but Russia has avoided it because this is a special military operation. It's not war. But what Russia has said is, if you expand this into Russia, you're going to turn it into war, and then we're going to take out everything. And they've also said, we know, for instance, to England, we know you have people in these centers. We know that. We know who they are. We know where they are. And their presence will not deter us from taking this out. Meaning if you think just because you have a Brit sitting in on a presidential advisory panel in, in, in Kiev that Russia won't now hit that out of fear of killing the British uh, official, no, that, that's off. They're also sending a signal right now to what's going on um, in Moldova, where Romania, Poland, and the Ukrainians are plotting some sort of uh, military action against the Russian breakaway Republic of Transnistria. Um, and if this happens, if this is an expansion that threatens Russia's strategic interests, you will see command and control centers in Romania, in Moldova, and in Poland be struck by Kinzhal missiles. This is what Russia is saying, that we're not fooling around. This is a special military operation to, to, to accomplish specific identified objectives of denazification, demilitarization, and permanent neutrality of Ukraine. And if you want to turn this into a bigger war, we're ready. But, you know, we're going to come at you instantly. You won't even have time to think about it. It will just happen, and it will be devastating. Now, Scott, the the Russians already know that this is what's happening here is, you know, when, when the U.S. forced Olaf Scholz's hand in shutting down Nord Stream 2 before they gave it the final um, authorization to actually begin running, the Germans and, and the other European partners had to quickly figure out how to divorce themselves from being so energy-reliant on Russia. And today the AP is reporting that Bulgaria, as we know, <laughs> refuses to pay the Russians in the currency of their choice. Mind you, they are the gas supplier, and they say, we want rubles only. We don't take Amex. We don't take dollars. We don't take euros. We take rubles. So give us rubles. They're saying no. They're digging their heels in. So Bulgaria is now apparently getting into a deal with a new pipeline that was under construction during this pandemic to get gas from Azerbaijan. So Poland and Bulgaria are going to get into this deal with Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has very good relations with Moscow. Does this appear that the Ukraine, or excuse me, not the Ukrainians, the, the Europeans are now weaponizing gas, LNG, and putting Azerbaijan between a rock and a hard place because they, they do have good relations with Moscow. I think Russia 
is mature about this. Uh, they, they've been energy players on the global market for forever. You know, there's two aspects of, um, of, of, of energy in Europe. One is, you know, the supply and the other is the cost. And the thing about Russia is that it had virtually unlimited supplies at very low cost, which is what made it attractive. Now, you know, first of all, this pipeline isn't complete. So I don't know where Bulgaria thinks they're getting their <laughs> gas from. And when they do get their gas, uh, they're going to be paying two to three times uh, the rate that they were paying uh, with Russia. And they can't afford that. They simply, I mean, that's just the reality. And, and you know, all these European countries saying that we're going to wean ourselves off of uh, Russian gas. Understand that you are literally doubling or tripling the price you're going to be paying for gas, and your economy can't sustain this. You know, so Russia's very mature about this. You know, you want to sign a contract to that? Go right ahead, do it. We're signing, you know, huge contracts with China right now. We're looking at shifting the flow of our gas, you know, eastwards into into Asia. You know, we're going to honor our contracts, but understand that when you sanctioned and stole our sovereign, you know, wealth fund, which was built on the dollars and euros that we got from you paying us for the gas, you violated the agreement. You created the conditions that in order for us, because otherwise, if we let you pay in dollars and euros, you're getting gas for free because it's going into an account that you've seized. Absolutely. You have to pay in rubles. Uh, so we get the benefit of this. And if you're not willing to do so, then the contract is terminated. And you're going to see right now, um, Bulgaria, they can they can do whatever they want. They have no gas right now. Scott, before we close, we have about two minutes left. I want to go back to the Moldova or the Transnistra attack. And can you, how significant should we give credence to this? I mean, the UK papers were trying to say that Russia did this in order to create a pretext. That makes zero sense at all. Um, what makes more sense, especially considering that they were basically, if I remember this correctly, if I remember reading this correctly, I don't have the article pulled up, but basically they were pushing um, to create another front in the war using Transnistra to do it. And then I saw that something about them raising the military for peacetime operations and those type of things. Can you give us the gravity of that? If that conflict does expand into that region, what, what should we expect? First of all, this if you remember uh, American history, there was a time in the 50s and 60s where Americans worried about us going to war in Laos. Yes. We're going to fight the communists in Laos. We ended up fighting a huge war in Vietnam instead. Um, I, I, I will tell you that I'm very concerned that uh, Transnisteria will turn into um, a trigger for a broader European conflict that goes beyond simply Russia versus Ukraine. Um, and it won't be Russia's fault. Russia has a 450,000 strong Russian population in Transnistria, very small military presence, 1,500 Russian peacekeepers, around 9,500 Transnistrian military people, purely a defensive group. They can carry out no offensive operations, but they're very vulnerable. And right now, Ukraine is basically saying, if we can create a, a diversion here, we, because right now Russia's winning the war in the East. They're destroying the Ukrainian military. But if Russia now has to divert resources from that battle to rescue a Russian population in Transnistria, um, that will disrupt everything. And so I think this is the gambit being played. The other gambit is that Moldova has always viewed Transnistria as a thorn in its side 
It doesn't recognize its independence. And Romania and Poland right now are working with Moldova to take advantage of any Ukrainian attack to move in and occupy Transnistria. And then if you do that, you virtually guarantee that Russia will not stop this conflict until it has pushed through Ukraine and not only recaptured Transnistria, but um, all of Moldova, which means a general war with Romania, a general war with um, with Poland. And, um, and remember, these conflicts can take can take place outside the framework of NATO, uh, because if Romanian and Polish troops get involved in Moldova, that is done on an individual national level, not as part of a NATO Article 4 understanding. So we can have a European war that doesn't include NATO, but involves NATO nations. Thank you very much for this. Always appreciate you coming on. Scott Ritter is a former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You can find him. Well, I don't think he's on Twitter. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas here, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Great conversation with Scott. And I, like I said, every time I leave those conversations, I am more worried, not less. You're Him, more dismayed. More more dismayed. Him and Sloboda. Because they have a tendency to just say, look, this is the reality of events on the ground. I know you're not going to hear it from them, and I, but you're here for me. This is what's taking place. And oftentimes, the potential for things to go disastrously wrong is just there. Like sometimes they say, oh, the worst can't. No, no, the worst can happen here. These guys aren't acting in rational interests of the populations and everything else. And then there's no such thing as a media to say, hey, these guys are lying to you. That's right. You know, the Ministry of Truth. They have a Ministry of Truth. Established. Exactly. And and we were the the boiling the frog in a boiling pot. Yeah. For the past 25 years. That's disturbing. That's so disturbing. You're not going to hear it. These guys are expanding the war into these larger territories that can basically put Russia at meaning these European countries can end up in a larger conflict. And they're doing this knowingly. And Zelensky has been shopping around trying to start the Third World War for months now. I mean, well, yes, he's petitioned to start the Third World War. That's true. That's yeah. true. He's been like, shut down my skies. Yeah. Shut down my skies. Will you shut down my skies? Yeah, Will you shut it down? Yeah. Poland, will you do it? We need a no-fly zone. You should have. We need more weapons. We need you to get involved. We need troops. We need this. We need that. We need NATO. Yeah. Give us expedited entry into the EU. I am trying to end the world. My name is Zelensky. And he so wants to go down in history yeah. for like the five people that survived. Right. And be like, <laughs> that Zelensky guy did it. Him and Hitler's beard. I like mean, or, mustache, or mustache. The yeah. mustache in a, in a cup. In a cup. Somewhere. At the end of the world. You know what I, I wanted to ask? Them and cockroaches. <laughs> you know what I wanted to ask, Scott, but we didn't have time, was I mean, on the talk of these lost weapons. Yeah. I started looking into it last night when I woke up from my nap. And, <laughs> and did you know that there are dozens of nukes, nuclear weapons missing? Really? Yes. So I started, because, you know, we're talking about how these arms aren't, you know, the U.S. is going to send all this stuff to Ukraine. They don't know what they are. Yeah, where they and, are, what they've been used for. Nothing. Oh, yeah. We're going to send it to the Donbass to fight the Russians there. And things go missing. 
nukes, Jamarl. Nuke, there are dozens. The, the then Soviet Union lost yeah. a couple, and the US has lost a number. Missing. There's one, believe it or not, one somewhere at the bottom of the ocean, like I think near British Columbia. Uh-huh. Oh, right? Ah. Oh, that's just been hanging out since the Cold War. Just there. I mean, it was, yeah, it was before we had, you know, cell phone technology, text messaging and GPS and yeah. whatever. We didn't have all that back then. And I get that. And I get that. But it's like, you're, I don't know, you're some dude on a carrier somewhere and you're like leaning on a nuke to smoke a cigarette maybe and it rolls <laughs> off into the ocean. And then what you don't, you just like, oh, how many was in this cargo? 20? No, it was 19. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to put that on the bill. 19. Scratch that out. Right. But yeah, there are literally like at least a dozen or so missing nuclear weapons. God, that's disturbing. And they only have an account for a handful of them where the other ones are God knows where. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Yakuza. They got it. Oh, that's horrendous. Yeah. I mean, El, uh, what is his name? Um, Ellsberg was talking about that, like, in the way, like... Ellsberg, Ellsberg was talking about Well, no, not the nukes. one missing nukes, but oh. he's made the point that we have gotten to this point in history purely by accident, meaning, like, our ability to preserve ourselves. It wasn't from good sense. It oh, wasn't oh, from oh. rational actions. It wasn't from any of that. We it was dumb into, luck. We yeah. stumbled into surviving? Yes. Th- I dumb guess, luck. I guess. Dumb luck. I mean, you lose... Like you said, we had missiles before we had cell phones. Yeah. We could destroy cities before we could call, you know, a neighbor. Well, yeah, and that, that I'm going to say, comes from a, a very, my very Hobbesian philosophy of mankind. Yeah. Because, yeah, with a soft culture that we have today, the cell phone will save you. But no, what will save you is having arms. Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. Back right. then. <laughs> like, I hope we've kind of graduated from that. I'd like to think that. I don't want to be Hobbesian, but I'm Hobbesian. We haven't graduated from anything. I mean, the, a, the, a violent creature. The modest operandi. I mean, because all incentives in the world go to this notion of defense. It just does. Like, like if you think about it, the war is the beating heart of the state, or the military is the beating heart of the state. A state exists insofar as they have a military to defend that state. I mean, it's almost like having a healthy ego versus just being, you know, insane. Yeah, having a basic government that can protect its sovereignty and everything else is one thing. Having a country that decides the go into other countries and knock over other governments and just kind of world conquest. The the world is a chessboard. That's something else. Military adventurism is not good. No, it is not. It is not. Let's do this. Let's get to headlines. But enjoy Scott. I always enjoy his commentary. He's so strong. He's like infinitely confident on anything that he says. I love it. Um, But in the news, in the news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill that would ban books of any teachings that suggest the U.S. is inherently racist among race-related concepts. These bills ensure that all of the state's national history or nation's history is taught accurately because here in Georgia, our classrooms will not be pawns of those who want to indoctrinate our kids with the partisan political agenda, unquote. Kim said at a signing ceremony on Thursday, what Kim doesn't realize is any way you go is where you at. If I teach my kid to be a vegetarian, I am indoctrinating my kid to be a vegetarian. If I allow them to eat meat, I am indoctrinating my kid to eat meat. Anywhere you go is where you at. Whatever you're teaching those kids, you're going to indoctrinate those kids. There are going to be some things that are closer to the truth than not. Kemp doesn't care about the truth. Kemp just wants to have a certain point of view to make himself feel better about his history. Yeah, good luck with that. Willie Joseph, canceled. 
Will Willie Joseph Cancel, 22 years old, an employee of the U.S. private military company, has been killed in Ukraine, media has reported. His mother, Rebecca Cabri, told CNN broadcaster that the company had sent him to fight alongside the Ukrainian forces and paid him for what, quote, he wanted to go over because he believed that Ukraine and what Ukraine was fighting for and he wanted to be a part of it to contain it there so it didn't come here and that maybe our American soldiers wouldn't have to get involved. Cabrera told CNN. Man, man, that death is on the media's conscience, to put it mildly. I mean, at the end of the day, this guy was so delusion, delusional that he went over there believing that he was on the right side of history. I'm sorry, dude, you weren't. And there was no way you could understand the context of that conflict in a way that you should have been over there at all. That's horrendous. That's a tragedy any way you look at it. He wanted to go kill Russians and end up getting killed himself. A senior U.S. military officer has identified China as a focal point for the Navy, citing the quote-unquote phenomenal growth of Beijing's military and its ambitious goals for the years ahead. Speaking at an event hosted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies on Thursday, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gidley called for, quote, whole of government approach to deterring China, unquote, arguing that the country is challenging us through all instruments of their national power. <laughs> wow. Talk about projecting. The prime minister of the Solomon Islands accused Australia of hypocrisy on Friday, saying the Canterbury should have been more transparent with other Pacific nations when signing the AUKUS pact before criticizing the new Honorai Beijing security deal of secrecy. I'm glad I'm not the only one that called the hypocrisy on that. At least 42 people were injured in a recent clashes near Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the Palestinian Red Crescent reported on Friday, noting that 22 of those had injuries requiring hospitalization. Red Crescent expects more clashes to occur in Jerusalem and the West Bank today, the last Friday of Ramadan. Israeli police said the order had been restored after morning clashes and the worshippers can now enter the temple mount freely. In tech news, Donald Trump has marked a glorious comeback on social media by posting on his app Truth Social for the first time. The ex-president shared a picture of himself holding a cell phone with his Mar-a-Lago estate in the background, adding the caption that read, I'm back, Kofefe. <laughs> okay, great. Still think he's going to be back on Twitter. In Earth and Science news, it seems that while the blue whale may currently be the largest creature on Earth, it can't be called the biggest animal of all time. Scientists have unearthed the remains of an ancient giant Ichthyosaur, and I think Manila hit that closer, which they claim could be the largest animal that has ever lived on the planet. The huge marine creature was identified from fossils representing three individuals that included massive teeth and vertebrae. The fossils were dug out of rock at an altitude of more than 9,000 feet in the Swiss Alps. In business news, Elon Musk sold about $4 billion worth of Tesla stock since securing the $44 billion deal to buy social media company Twitter. According to the Securities and Exchange Commission filings published on Thursday, the Tesla CEO offloaded 4.4 million shares on April 26 and 27. He now holds just over 168 million shares of Tesla via a trust. For this day in history, in 1945, a day before committing suicide, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun got married. Such a nice ceremony before offing themselves. In 1968, the musical Hair goes to Broadway. In 1975, Hubert Van Ness 
takes the famous picture of a helicopter airlift from Saigon rooftop. In 1992, the deadly riots erupt in Los Angeles. And in 1997, Chemical Weapons Convention becomes effective. Those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. You know, what's interesting about that picture from Saigon, I think it's probably one of the most iconic pictures from the Vietnam War. This was the helicopter pulling off of of the roof of the building as all of the people were basically trying to clamor on to be the last people to basically leave, all of them knowing that it was going to basically fall. This was the picture that Joe Biden was talking about when he said, you're not going to see people hanging off of helicopters in Afghanistan. You did see people hanging off of what it's those C-130 um, airplanes or whatever those things were. You actually did see people hanging off those. But I guess I'm making the point that the image that Joe Biden was talking about was that picture and that famous iconic picture. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, and you were at the riots. So I'm still enamored by that. So how old were you when the riots were basically taking place in Los Angeles? Uh, 1992, I would have been 12. Okay. So old enough to remember middle school. And so the riots were taking place while you guys. So, okay. So this was, man, see, I don't have a full memory of this. So this was during day and night. How long did the riots last? It was, it was only a little over a week. Wait, is this the Roger Denny stuff? The, the Rod, um, uh, well, it was after Rodney King, but before that it was because it was already a tinderbox at that time. Right. It was kind of, it was Koreans and, and blacks mm-hmm. because, uh, her name was Latasha. Harlins or Hawkins Harlins, Natasha Harlins was shot by a Korean liquor store owner, a lady, a Korean lady. Uh, And you can look all of this up. That was already, you know, boiling under before the Rodney King case that was the first, you know, home video footage of us where we are now, where you, you know, tape police. That's right. That's right. And then the Reginald Denny truck beating in response. was in response from the black community feeling like it's white people, it's Asian people, it's against us. Yeah. And that was kind of the outbreak. It was also, I mean, African-Americans have said for decades, cops are maniacs. They were said it all the time. And it, with the cell phones and everything else, that was, the, I think, the first video where you could see it clearly well, those cops just beat them. We're going to town. Just it going to awful. town. All of them surrounded. Almost like all those old lynch mobs where they're Terrible. just beating the devil out of a guy. And so it's like, that's the whole, can we all get along stuff? Right. And that's what all of that stuff was coming it about. Was, it was, that came from Rodney King himself. Yeah. Where he's like, can't we all just get along? I mean, you, as a, as a kid, seeing this happening just a few miles from where I, Your school. my home, my yeah. school was, was it really put into context for me. It was one of those things that really shaped your worldview because you're watching this violent action from the people that, because you're, you're indoctrinated in school to believe communities. these people, you know, these people in uniform are there to protect you. But then... Oh, I never believe that. How do, but I mean, when you're a, a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, that's what you're brought up to believe at school. You know, you have yeah. the cops come to your school and they talk to you about what they do and you look at, you know, their squad car and whatever. And so you're, you're brought up in school to believe, oh, okay, this, this man in uniform is there to protect me. And then that video right there shattered my belief in going, all cops are not good. I'm not saying they're all bad. Some of my best friends are cops, great cops, LAPD. But... There are a number of bad actors, and they they spoil the bunch. Yeah, I think the majority are bad actors, if I'm being honest. And I think all sorts of incentives go into making them those bad actors, one of which, non-accountability. 
I, and but you know what? There are a lot of studies out there that show the because it it is it's a very small. I mean, there's we're talking about millions of police officers in America. Millions. There are millions of people that wear the badge, and it's not. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but in, there's got to be over a million. Got to be. I mean, in L.A. County alone, six hundred ninety-six thousand six hundred forty-four cops are yes. counting sheriffs. No. Police, in 2020, PD? there were 6,000, I'm sorry, in, in 2020, there were 696,644 full-time law enforcement officers employed in the United States. So you think they're counting PD with sheriffs and and Oh, I don't marshals. know. I didn't think it was a million. Well, I, that's we're, I looked at. we're woefully underemploying. Cops don't want to be, co- people don't want to be cops. Cops don't want to be cops anymore. It's a hard job. And again, one of my best girlfriends. Stop killing people. Stop beating people up. One of my best girlfriends, I, we say she's Blacksican, right? <laughs> so she's a minority woman. She's, a, she's Blacksican. She's half Black and half Mexican. Right. She's Blacksican. And, and I mean, she says that, right? So she's a minority woman. When all these riots were happening over George Floyd, she, her squad vehicle, and mind you, this is a Black cop, a Black woman cop. One of her, she's one of the people whose squad vehicles, her SUV, was, you had mobs of people jumping on her vehicle. She was there. I mean, they were trying to kill her. How is that acceptable? So there, there are a number is, of studies. I mean, what does her race have to do with that? Because if this was a, a racial thing, like they're, you know, they're saying, oh, all cops are just attacking black people. Th- th- of course that's happening. It's, I have a family member who, I believe, was killed by the policeman. That's a whole different story. But do I believe all cops are bad? No. The majority of them are bad? No. The answer actually, I know, the answer actually to bad policing is not defund the police and less police. It's actually to have more of them. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why. Being a cop is such a hard job. They are woefully, as we just heard the number, woefully underemployed. The, the number of cops out there. So they're, they are overworked. They are stressed. They are, so you're going to create the environment for people to, as a cop, to behave badly or not make the best judgment when they're working 16-hour days. So they are, so the 99, basically the 1%, um, that get prosecuted. And it's not even 1%. It's like 33% of 1%. They get prosecuted when they basically kill, injure, steal, and deprive of resources. So basically, it's not their fault. It's more so that they just need more love. They need to be hugged. No, no, no. Police need I, like hugs. Like I said, there are bad people in our society, period. Whatever think, race they are, whatever— I guess my point is the incentives build the process. Whatever job they have— there are crappy cops. There are crappy doctors. There are nefarious actors in every every race, every job, every everything. That's true, but I don't care if the Starbucks person is nefarious. I do care. No, if you a cop, should care because they might. What if they're poisoning you? I know, but what if they're what if they're spitting in your coffee? They can what spit if, in my coffee, but if that cop stops me and he's by himself, he can kill me. Scary. He can yeah. walk after he murders me. All of those things are built into the process. Meaning that guy from Starbucks has a. I don't care if he's nefarious. 
Yes, I don't want him spitting in my coffee. No, I don't want him rubbing his penis in my coffee. Oh, I don't want any of that stuff to take place. You're moral. By the same token, <laughs> I'm just, just being honest, right? I don't want that. I don't want that. They have those videos. Have you seen those old videos? Like where it's like the person in the background and it's like, oh, that's so gross. That's so gross. No, of course I don't want that. I'm just saying there's a higher standard in regards to the potential for things to go wrong. Like loose cigarettes. When, what's his name is out there? He's selling loose cigarettes. Eric and Garner. Eric Garner. And it's like, so wait, for selling loose cigarettes, that's a death sentence? Are you insane? Like, it's like, why, it's like, why do you believe, and I'm not talking about you, I'm just saying, why do this notion that these guys are able to do this and walk and do it with impunity? When they killed Tamir Rice, 12-year-old. Oh, yeah. 12-year-old. And he's out there within two seconds, the kid was dead. Again, Awful. no it's a, consequences. It's a confluence of things, right? Of our culture, the divide within our culture, because I don't I don't actually know who called the police. Do you know? Nope. Because that that is never but to me, revealed. it doesn't matter. But that's but that's my point is it's likely more often than not, the Karens are usually of one sort of race, one type of person. They generally fit. A, a general description. And that is where that racial divide comes in. Right. And this is because they're, they're going to look at you differently. You're an other. I'm an other. I'm a minority woman. Right. They're going to expect different things out of me than they would out of you. If you behaved a certain way, let's say we do the same thing. It's a 12-year-old. I know. I know that. And I'm, I, covered, I covered the case. I, I know. To me, I mean, awful. And it doesn't matter if a current called. It still boils down to the responsibility of the cop not but, to murder but a 12-year-old. What I'm, here's where I'm going with that, is that these are, I think it was two white cops that showed up. Okay. It, this, this sort of racism is in, ingrained into our society, into each individual's cultures and whatever tribalism that is in there. I mean... Sure, do, we, do I want kumbaya and for all of us to get along? Absolutely. Going back to the Rodney King thing, why can't we all just get along? Because the tribalism is ingrained so deeply, so deeply. So the cops doing that horrible stuff to Rodney King, the cops pulling up and within eight seconds killing a, a little boy with a toy gun, that stems from a lot of other things. But here's... Here's, here's the rub. Here's the rub. Here's the rub. If you properly hired the right kinds of cops, if you fund the police department, you, you hire the right kinds of people. I mean, D.C., right here. They We were the first ones here in the whole country. I know we're not a state, but yeah. D.C., in the district, they're the first ones in the country to employ social workers to go out with police officers to handle these non, you know, violent, non-threatening calls. Because that's where a lot of the, the problems exist and where people get hurt. So, yeah. and that's my point about properly funding police departments is because then you can have that. Then you can have other resources to go with the police officer yeah. who most often is not college educated, certainly not educated in the field of psychology. Yeah. You need to, you need to send them with somebody that is. I can accept that cops have somewhat of a difficult job and are put into difficult positions. I don't care. It is their job. And whether it's a Karen that calls them or what doesn't matter in the least to me. They have a responsibility. They're dealing with the citizenry, killing the citizenry. Right, right here, D.C. You want to point out D.C.? What it was a few months ago, a guy is sleeping in his car. He has a gun on his, um, on his lap, but he's sleeping in his car. Cops see him. They find him. 
they take about 30 minutes to get closer to the car because their concern was if the guy wakes up, we don't want him to grab the gun, get scared, and shoot. It takes all of this time to end up getting to the guy. They have shields and everything else. They end up killing that guy because when the guy wakes up, the guy, apparently, we don't even know if the guy reached for his gun. It's just the fact that he had it there that they end up killing the guy. I am saying, yeah, that's terrible. And that is normal. 99% of those cops, no consequences for it. Only 1% get consequences. And only 33% of that 1% basically go to jail. Change the laws. disturbingly bad. Then change the laws. I know, but but the point I'm making is it's the incentives that are built into the process. And one of those incentives is having no risk. You're saying that's the incentive. That's one of them. But incentive implies that they... They want to take it. Incentive is like a coupon, right? And you're like, oh, I didn't really want to buy a bag of Doritos, but I have a coupon for half off. So I'm going to go buy a bag of Doritos. No, no, no. It's just what drives or what is built within the context of that system that drives the behavior of the various people it's that are in no, it. It's just no fear of the consequence because there are none. But again, I'm going back to the nature of man and the Hobbesian, my Hobbesian philosophy is that that men are, are natural, not this men. This is not a philosophy issue. Not, not men. I'm not saying just men because women can be too. But the the this nature is not the nature of man but the nature of man the hobbesian theory is that the nature of man is violent and life is short and brutish and here's the thing that doesn't the, matter the cop the cop wants to go home to their family too so you got to look which at it which is the, at both also sides. part of the problem which but is also part sides. of the problem There's because both that sides cop to this. that cop trying to go home doesn't mean that it gives them the right to murder I agree. kill no, take resources I agree. beat and nor does it mean that the society should give them a pass when they do it. oh they just, they're just so difficult job I don't disagree with that I don't disagree with that I believe there's it's a confluence of things and the the problem is top down it's all amazing. the way to the cop that is is under, on that beat under normal circumstances we always when a judge is putting somebody in prison, the judge doesn't say, oh, the society did this and this is the Hobbesian theory. The judge looks at the person and say, you, as an individual, are responsible for X or Y. And yet for cops, they need hugs. They need, you know, it's such Nobody a difficult said job. That. I didn't say that. I'm not talking Jamar, about you. Don't reduce it to I am, just that, I am, I am teasing. Yes, I'm but teasing. But don't reduce that. the argument to just that. Okay, that's not I'm not going to reduce is. the argument to it. I am going to say that none of that stuff matters. What matters is those people ended up killing other people. That's what matters. We've had cops on the show that had this conversation. And no, they didn't stand up all that well to being the scrutiny being put on them, their behavior, and the things that society allows them to do. I, I, the laws surrounding the practice of their job should be changed. I was, I was the first. With that. I mean, with, um, gosh, what's her name? With the no-knock warrant, the, uh, Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor. I was, I mean, I'm not mainstream press. Nobody heard it from me because I'm not mainstream press. And, you know, God forbid I work for the Russians. <laughs> I was the first on that beat where I heard about this horrible thing. And no-knock warrants are, are awful. Yeah. Are awful. For the same reason that the, the young man recently that was killed, and they weren't even looking for him. Um, again, this is, I mean, I, I'm terrible with names unless I have literally written it, written it down. But... But there are so many, there are so many cases we can point to. And I, I agree that the laws around how a police officer has no consequences for this, unless you're Derek Chauvin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's really the first time I've ever seen a police officer in my nearly 20-year media career. The first time I have seen a police officer be held accountable for his actions. And that was, I, I believe, a wonderful thing. And usually... 
bad cops have a history of being bad cops. But if the, the departments were paying properly, you hire better people. And that is, that is the incentive to go be a cop. Right now, if you're going to pay them squat, who do you think is going to go work there? You're going to get kids like this, this young man that was killed in Ukraine, ex-Marine that probably never saw theater of war ever in his life, who was working at a corrections facility, right? Thinking he's going to go be Rambo in Ukraine. That's what you're getting on your police force. So if you change the incentives of why people should be a cop, change the laws around consequences to it, you will get better outcomes. And it doesn't come by defunding the police. It comes with reallocating where that funding goes in the police department. Look, I agree with you with the defunding the police thing. I thought that was ridiculous. And the ridiculousness of it is shown when Eric Adams gets in office, right? He's an ex-cop. He's an ex-cop, right. So it's like... And crime is up in New York City. Exactly. So it's like the defund the police thing. And it's like, dude, okay, well, what do you do when crime goes up? What do you think the population is going to do? My mom would say, I don't want them to get rid of cops. We'll get Ted Rawls. Ted Rawls is a full lefty. And he'd be like... New York needs we, we cops. Have, right. Yeah. So, you know, so it's not, this isn't a, a thing or an argument of we need to get rid of cops. That's not my argument. My argument is that the situations to which we are presented with and the things that they do um, are problematic in, in this society. And, you know, I am hard pressed to pick up a phone and call the cop. I just am. I have no idea I, of the consequences of I what they're going to do to somebody else. I, I am All of too. that stuff. It's like a loaded gun. I am too. Wild animals But you and I have a, a different we're looking at it through a different lens because we are not, most likely, the, the police officers that show up don't look like you or me. So there is a different, we're, we're looking at it at, at a different lens. I'm hard-pressed to call the cops myself. Yeah. But I'm saying, but that shouldn't matter. I agree. Whether the cop looks Th- like me that's shouldn't all shoulds. be a rationale. That is all the shoulds and coulds and wouldas, wishes. Again, in practice. But your entire argument is, well, we should have this. We should have that. I know. We should have more training. But, but what I'm saying is the reason, the, the should is based on this kumbaya theory. And I wish that was true. But the reality on the ground of how you make things better is by refunding the police, not defunding the police and incentivizing good people to get onto the force. And not these guys that are trying to be, you know, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Swirling, twirling their guns around, gunslinging, because that's who you're getting right now. I know, but the job almost brings those people into the job itself. That's the case. Meaning this is not purely an individual thing. That's what I'm trying to get across. Agreed, but those are the reforms that are are needed. And it starts from the top down. And like you said, with Mayor Adams, with why is New York City seeing the highest amount of crime and violent crime at that? We're not talking about petty theft, while that is up too, but violent crimes, rapes, murders, any kind of gun assault charge, whether or not people die, it doesn't matter. If you use a gun, that is considered a violent crime. Yes. All those, all the, those crimes are spiking 40-year highs. Haven't seen this since the 70s. Yeah. Why is that happening? Economic degradation. There's, again, a confluence of things. So from the top down, if you attract a better type of person, the right now pickers, pick, what is it? What is it saying? The, uh, Pickers can't be choosers. What is it? Beggars can't be beggars, choosers. No. Yeah. Yeah, beggars. Beggars. You're right. Yeah. Beggars, beggars can't, can't be choosers. choosers. I kind of feel like that's where we're at. Beggars is, can't be choosy. Is right. People, police departments are begging for people to come work there. Begging. Everybody's understaffed. 
they created the context in which they're living with. It's that simple. And it's not just they. It's our. It's the people up here on Capitol Hill too. It's the local municipality. There are problems from the top down. There are problems so, from the top down. But by the same token, if you're creating situations where the public is hostile towards you because you're killing, you have zero consequences. Even a situation where other cops will come problem. out and back other cops when they killed to when they murdered Tamir Rice, they didn't come out and castigate the cop for doing that. They came out and defended the cop. They murdered that 12-year-old. And there is a culture of, of exactly. a bad culture of back the blue, defend the badge, exactly. brothers of badge or whatever Which they is say. exactly my point. When the public sees that and the public looks at that and says, okay, these guys are hostile and these guys and are belligerent. And that's exactly my point of saying get better people behind the badge. I, I don't have this as an individual thought. That's Meaning I don't have these things. As get, you get better people behind the badge, you will get better results. And you get better people by better vetting by offering better pay yeah, and knowing that, that they're not going to be working 18-hour days. Like you said, beggars can't be choosers. But beggars can't be choosers. Right. Okay. I always, choosers. Choosers. I don't know. Cho- I, mean, I think, I think choosing. Beggars is. can't be choosers. But see, yeah. This is, where, this is the fault line yeah. tomorrow <laughs> between you and I. I believe in, in getting more and better. Yeah. More and better cops. Um, more, maybe. I think I'm fine with that. Um, reallocation of resources away from better the cops is the, and the so big forth. thing, though. It's not just more; it's better because you don't want more of this. I just don't know what better means in that context. Well, when you, I mean, you you get people that have gone through college, people perhaps with psychology training, people with other experiences, not just kids that are eighteen years old, and they're going to want to be cops. Eighteen year old, you incentivize the people to want to be a cop. I hear you. Incentives. Hear it drives you. people. Oh, I do believe incentive drives people. I just think the incentives that built into this process bring in people who are the type of people who we have doing it. Anger maniacs, people who have authority issues. Uh, there are a lot. Right, they are right attracted now. to that particular That's what field. I'm saying. That is right now. They would always be attracted that to this That is how things are right now. They would always be attracted reforms, to fields like this, even with re- those reforms. I mean, the, the handful of cops that I know, and maybe it's because I grew up with them and we grew up similarly and, and they are all minorities. Yeah. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But I, I know that my friends know their community that they serve. They get out and talk with the people. Those are the good cops. I think your friends have a relationship with you. And because you have a relationship with them, you look at them in a very specific lens. Well, no, no, the people I see who they're engaging, it may look at them differently. No, I mean, these... This isn't is Mayberry. This isn't Mayberry. But I'm from L.A. Yeah. It, is, it is a dangerous town. That's right. But... My friends actually know the names of the homeless people. We'll actually have actually, you know, talked some kids and out of doing stuff, let's just say, right? Because okay. you know the names of those kids. Or sometimes you, they've given them rides out of a tough spot. Yeah. That is the definition of a good cop that serves their community. That the first thing they do is not pull out their gun. The first thing they do is act accordingly, calm, judge who you're looking at, what you're, judge your situation. That is a good cop. There's not enough of them. I think those are friends of yours. And I think you, you have a think view, that, but... an image of those cops. And if they're dealing with people on the street, I think it may be different. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. Do you I'm think just they're saying... making up stories and telling me yeah, fake I think, stories? I, are they going to tell you bad stories about themselves? Oh, they've told me bad things that they've seen and uh, witnessed. Uh, that they've and seen they've and witnessed. Actually, where they've actually been in a hostile situation with their own coworkers right. because their coworker is doing something bad because that, exactly. that 
There are, that it's always somebody glue, else. That's exactly my the point. Bra- but they're, they're not going to tell your you. Premise, but your premise, Jamarl, is that every single cop is bad, and that is not that true. That is not my premise. I that never said that. True. So how how would you say my my friends are not could not be some of those? I'm good saying people. there's no way for you to know. I'm saying you are friends with them, meaning you have a personal relationship with them. I understand that that might be my my bias, but I also don't believe them because I've known them. Right. I don't believe they would lie to me that they know their community that they serve. Right. That they're, you know, they're beat because they're assigned to a certain area. Yeah. That if you see re- repeat offenders of whatever it may be, a kid tagging the wall, a kid spray painting or whatever, you're telling me that she's making up stories telling me that she doesn't know those kids. Oh, I'm not saying that she doesn't know every kid that she's coming across. every kid, but these repeat offenders. What I'm making the point to you is I would imagine that there are some people that they know on the beat. Wouldn't be shocked at it at all. I would, wa- I would wager to you that Derek Chauvin knows various people on the beat also. And that if Derek but Chauvin is talking to people, bad, he's not going to say, I put a knee on my guy's throat. He's going to say, bad, I try to knows, get that guy to not spray paint that wall. And I try to tell them, that kid and show that kid the right them, thing. I'm sure by name because he's had bad confrontations with them. But and he would never recount those bad confrontations to his friends. Does Derek Chauvin have friends? Of course he does. Word, word gets out. Does he have family members? Of course he Especially does. Especially if you stay in the community you were born and raised in, the word gets out. I guess the point that I'm making is Derek Chauvin is going to have friends. He's going to have people that he tells those stories to. And he's not going to tell those stories of, I had my knee on the guy's throat for God knows how long. It's going to be. I don't know about that. I think somebody like that does hmm. okay. talk about those stories. They're bad stories because they think they're acting like a cowboy and being a badass. Yeah. I don't know that. I suspect I don't that think his friends don't think like that way. That. Well, like again, I've never made the argument that every cop is like that. I do think the majority are not good. I wouldn't go majority. I wouldn't even go 50%. Ah, that's the fault line. That is the fault line. Let's, we have callers. David from South Carolina. David, what's going on, my man? Hi. Um, sorry. Sorry, I had to just call in without the... Hi, <laughs> David. Because I've been going insane. Manila, the last thing these cops need is more funding. These cops, like cities like L.A., Los Angeles, they have bigger police budgets than most countries have military budgets. I mean, it is ridiculous. They are walking around with military-grade weapons. That is true. I'm not for the, what is it, the 1130, 11— Yeah, those tanks and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not yeah. for militarizing cops. I'm for community policing. And, I, and you know, I, I think the last thing they need is more funding, a reallocation of resources. Absolutely. Uh you know, and we, I think both of y'all understand sociology enough and, you know, know enough to know that the number one driver of crime is poverty. Yes. That is. Like I said, economic deficit. If you really want to see lower crime in big cities like New York City, Los Angeles, the poverty, poverty, it's such, it, you know, it drives, you know, it drives crime. and It makes crime rational. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. But there are so many, so many problems, especially with big cities, David. I mean, it, it, I mean, gosh, you, you look at the problems happening in my hometown in Los Angeles with Gascon. Back to poverty, though. So much of it will go, goes back to poverty. And also, um, there's such a deep, it's like a deep-seated, um, you know, if you know the history of policing rooted in, um, like, slave catchers and all that back in the day. Back in you know the 1800s, I mean, it's slave patrol. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a very deep-rooted mm-hmm. systemic, systemic um, bad system. And I think you know there there are good actors, 
but I would say I'm with the world majority or, you know, it's, it, it attracts a certain type of person. doesn't matter how much money you give them. I mean, and they're, these, these cops are very well paid. Yes, they work a lot of hours, but they are making a lot of money. I, I agree. There, there are, it attracts a certain type of person. I mean, every job attracts a certain type of person, right? But if you change the fundamental demands of that job, you will attract a different type of person. I mean, that's just, that's, it's, it's the carrot and the stick, right? How, how does the, you know, how does that get fundamentally changed whenever it's such a deep-rooted systemic issue? David, thank you for the call, my man. Yes, yeah. Because we have like, Oh, we have people co- waiting we have on the call today. David, thank um, you. There's a lot to fix. Yeah. Let's go to Daniel, San Antonio. What's going on, Daniel? Hi there. Um, I want to propose a solution that I heard from the Facebook uh, guy, Police the Police. Um, before I get into that solution, his now is th- Police the Police 3.0 because every time Facebook takes down his uh, page, he just puts another 3.0, 4.0. Oh, oh okay. I see. I see. I see. <laughs> So one of the solutions that I heard years ago was to have um, what doctors have insurance for, which is malpractice insurance. So if they happen to make a mistake, they have insurance to pay the uh, victim. Well, cops, the victims of cops are paid by the cities or the communities themselves and not the private sector. And by giving the private sector incentive, hey, you have to have this insurance. So if you accidentally or kill somebody and you're found negligent, well, the insurance pays out the money to it. And by doing this, you'll get rid of the bad cops because what happens to a bad cop, they do a bad deed. They go to a smaller, uh, in the middle of nowhere town to serve as their cop. So the... You know what? That's a good that is that's a good point because if you are a repeat drunk driver, you and at least in California it's called you you have an SR22 insurance. I mean it's like arm and a leg for the insurance cuz nobody wants to insure you because you are a constant drunk driver, right? So you pay an arm and a leg for SR22 insurance. That I mean that I guess it's that like would apply. It's like they're trying to use incentive in order to That would apply yeah. here. That makes sense. I like that. Hmm, that's an interesting I like it. Because it changes the incentives in a way that says, okay, you can, how many times are you going to allow this person to repeat? Well, after a while, they can't repeat. You know what I right. mean? Right. They can't afford to repeat. They literally can't afford to repeat. So it's use, using basically economic sanctioning yeah. to force the hand of behavior. Yes. I like so that, that. That's a pretty cool idea. We have Malik, D.C. What's going on, Malik? Uh, hey there. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, real quick, you know, I wanted to, you know, touch on New York. Um, you know, I'm, you know, born and raised in New York, and I go back there very often. Um, and I've, I, I think I may have mentioned this on another show. When I go back now, uh, one of the things that I see that I didn't see in in my years growing up, and I and I, I don't think has probably ever been the case, is you have uh, pretty much an army of of adolescent homeless. And, and and young black men on the street who are completely outside the system. Um, and everyone pretends that they don't see it. When you go back to, when, when I go back to New York City now, just walking around, I see young black men 
teenagers. Not, you know, I'm, I, you've been used to seeing grown men who are homeless. Um, I see young black men on the street homeless, and with with no way with no way to change that situation. And you have you have a and I and I and I have to speak in particular to the black uh, political class. You know, which we, you know many of us call the neo-colonial class. They don't care. I expect them to care before I, you know, expect Joe Biden to care. And they don't care. Same here, same here in D.C. You go to places in Southeast, there are places in Southeast that look to me as if they're caught in some kind of time warp. They look like they're a neighborhoods from the 60s because they have that level of poverty. You know, um, and, and in, in terms of, of I, I agree with Jamal, the, the point Jamal was making on, on police, uh, Manila, I, I think um, it is a system that corrupts because the police serve the ruling class. And, and, and I think that that's the thing that you have to keep in mind. Malik, thank you, my man. Malik, yeah, I don't disagree. Oh, we talked. To, sorry. We don't. We talked to Malik the other day. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree. And that's why I'm saying that the reforms need to be done. Because the ability is there. Yeah. They just don't do it. And look, That's I agree with you with the... They don't do it. The defund the police thing is nonsense. I, I thought that was nonsense from day one. Way to go. Yeah, right. I didn't think that was the way to go. Um, look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, real Fault Lines. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, Chad, we're going to be back in a moment with David Tawil. The budget, I mean, we're basically in a recession. Let's call it what it is, regardless of how the New York Times is trying to cast it. Oh, right. But, yeah. There is like, oh, it's like, this looks bad, but it's not as bad as it looks. Okay, whatever. Let's just blame Putin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Police fault. We'll be back in a moment. Fault lines. Thomas Chan. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to go to our guests because we don't have a huge amount of time with them. So we have the one and only David Tawil. He's co-founder of ProChain Capital, multi-strategy crypto asset fund covering the entire ecosystem of the burgeoning asset class with deep experience in crypto assets, token mining, venture capital, programming, and asset management. David, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing? I'm great. It's Friday. Always good to speak to you guys on Friday. It is Friday indeed. Fun Friday. Fun Friday. And we got the news yesterday that the economy shrunk 1.4% in the first three months of the year. And they're saying this is rising fears of recession. Now, keep in mind, this hasn't even, the war has been going, what, two months? Like, this hasn't even been baked in. But don't forget, the New York Times says 1.4 ain't so bad. Right, right. right. We were totally right. expecting worse. 1.4 is great. We should celebrate this. 1.4 is awesome. And just to we put contracted in, just 1.4. That's all, just 1.4. It says last year, for example, the U.S. economy grew by 5.7%, the fastest full clip since 1984. And then in the first three months, 1.4% drop. David. What is going on with this? Is this something we should expect going forward? This is this is Putin's fault, right? Just so we're clear. <laughs> we can, we can laugh for a whole show about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but no, I mean we're 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 we were way overheated in this country, um, you know, and we're definitely headed uh, into a recession. Just a question of how deep and how long. Um, you know, let's let's talk around um, since since it was on my mind this morning because apparently Biden made an announcement about 
his plans for student loans. Um, could you imagine what would happen if student loans had to be paid back, right? They're, they're still in suspension. There's probably going to be, uh, Biden seems to say, don't expect anything more than a $50,000 forgiveness. I, I'd be happy with a $50,000 check, certainly. Unfortunately, I have no student loans left. Um, but, um, you know, clearly we're in a bad place if, you know, borrowers cannot go ahead and make good on normal course debts like student loans that they've taken out and need, um, you know, a suspension and potentially a forgiveness. And we're still struggling in terms of the contraction of the economy. We are in a bad place. Supply chain is broken. It's not getting fixed anytime soon. Shanghai going into lockdown makes it even worse to the extent that that's protracted. That will go ahead and hit, you know, back to school and then the holiday season. Um, so it, it, it's 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 going to get messy here, um, you know, and companies are going to start to be in a world of pain. Um, two two examples that that I'm watching are Carvana uh, and Cooper Standard. Uh, so both are in the automotive space, but Carvana, people know pretty well, it's their retailer. Um, and essentially, they've flipped the used car market, uh, what was traditionally a very sleepy you know, business, fragmented on its head. They levered up. They created this massive structure um, that is national. They have those beautiful but very strange car vending machines in certain places. Um, and, you know, things are starting to slow down. We saw incredible rise in the price of cars all around and used cars as well. And now those that the heat of, of that is coming off and they are not prepared to handle it. They went ahead and tried to raise some money. It became incredibly difficult. They needed a bailout from a private equity fund in order to get this done. But the question is, is how bad is their business going to go ahead and get? With respect to Cooper Standard, they are a manufacturer of automotive parts. They are, you know, a classically highly levered company, lots of debt on its balance sheet. And they're having problems from the breakdown in supply chain and not enough cars being available to go ahead and be sold to the public. And, you know, we're going to have a rise in rates, so it's going to cost more to go ahead and buy a car because most people finance either through a lease or through a purchase. And uh, people have, you know, on the whole, uh, on a real terms basis, on an absolute basis, um, you know, less money to go ahead and spend because they're spending a lot more on things like groceries and gasoline. So there we are. We are in a bad spot, folks, and it's going to get. Would you say that the real estate prices we're seeing right now, is this the second coming of the bubble like we saw in 2008? I got to tell you, real estate, I'm not a real estate investor. Uh, and I know a lot of people that are, and I watch that market very closely. And unlike stocks, bonds, you know, other types of enterprises, there really never seems to be a full collapse of real estate prices. Certainly, I can't remember a real collapse inside of the last 20 years. There, there, there have been freezes, right, where essentially nothing has gotten done there's been a lot of jockeying around, you know, foreclosure activity and things like that. But we we have not seen, you know, a major collapse dialing back real estate prices. Um, and I, I, I don't know if the real if the asset class is impenetrable to it, 
Um, but, you know, it's going to get tested. I mean, we're seeing, you know, certainly on the housing side, uh, we have seen incredible expansion in pricing. Incredible. Uh, mind-blowing. From the luxury all the way down to, you know, I'd say the, 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 the standard. And it, it, it just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, to the extent that it's people's most important asset, um, and, and, you know, most needed asset in life shelter, um, they will stretch and stretch and stretch until they are spending close to a hundred percent of their income on housing. They will cut everything else because they need, that's essential. I mean, there's, there, you know, they, they can't exist without. It. So, and we've seen that metric go up and up in terms of how much of total earnings People are spending on housing, whether it be rent or mortgage payments. And there's, there has to be a very, to your point, there has to be a breaking point. If rates continue to go up, therefore my mortgage payments have to be higher on the same size loan, then I, at some point I can't continue to pay more money and pay up in for that same property. There is a and so, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see, um, you know, if, if we hit that. But, yes, we, we are cruising um, for a housing crisis. And the question is, is how, how does it manifest itself and, and when does it come? David, I want to add one more thing to this. And this was, let me see, European gas prices spiked on reports of Russian gas shut off to Poland. And it says the TTF month ahead price jumped 18 percent on news of basically the Poland thing. Poland is still getting Russian gas. I don't care what Poland says. They're going through Germany to get it, but whatever. The, the fact that the gas prices are basically spiking in this way, what effect is that going to have on German industry or industry in Europe? And what effect is that going to have on the rest of the world in regards to the economies of the world? Okay, so th- there's a lot to unpack in this question, okay? Let, let's just lay out a couple of elements, okay? We have to go ahead and differentiate between oil and gasoline natural gas. Those are two different, although we like to lump it together in terms of energy, um, they're two different markets uh, and they are very different commodities in terms of how they are transported, um, imported and exported, um, and also the needs of them, right? So gasoline, for instance, or oil, um, you know, the, the, the countries of Western Europe have been really good at weaning themselves off fairly quickly, Russian oil. They've gotten it from other places. So Germany just came out yesterday, I think it said, and said, we're ready for a full-blown embargo on Russian oil. Why is that? Well, Germany has been able to go ahead and reduce its reliance over the last couple months on Russian oil from 30-something percent to, I think, about 12% right now. So to go ahead and take the 12 to zero, Germany pretty much feels like they can pull it off without destroying their economy, okay? So we're kind of prepared for that. Natural gas is a whole ball of wax. Get it in other... Oh, everybody's phones are... It's Friday for the phones too, I guess. Damn, CIA. I know. We're screwing with our systems. We had had Scott's face pushing buttons. (laughs) Right. We had the caller who we could... He couldn't figure out the, the volume level that was appropriate for the phone call. And now, David. David, are you still there? Throw me back in. Oh, there, there you are. There you are. Oh, there you are. No, no. We, we are, you said you were unpacking 
what was going on, you were making the distinction between, let's say, gas versus oil, and in the way that Germany could basically get rid of oil, but couldn't necessarily get rid of natural gas. Right. So, 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 okay. So we've brought down the reliance by Western Europe on Russian oil. That's, that's an easy fix. Natural gas, on the other hand, is a much more difficult um, process to go ahead and wean yourselves off because it comes by pipeline. The only alternative is to have another pipeline, which takes time to construct or to use liquefied natural gas. Now, liquefied natural gas is currently being imported into Western Europe um, you know, as quickly as it possibly can. As a matter of fact, it's fully saturated in a lot of those ports right now. And those facilities that go ahead and convert the liquefied natural gas back into gas um, are working at full capacity. And I don't think that there is going to be an easy way to go ahead and make that fix. And that's where we turn after that issue to the dollars or whatever, the euros to rubles story, right? Where Austria has now said, we're allowed to buy our nat gas, the, the European we're cool with buying Russian natural gas because we're paying for it in euros. We're not paying for it in rubles. That's not so clear right now because apparently a lot of countries, unbeknownst to a lot of other countries, are paying in euros in one account, having those euros converted into rubles in another account, and then having those rubles sent to Russia. So Russia, it seems, is losing when it comes to the oil issue, but frankly, they're selling off into China, and I think there's probably some European players that are going to take oil in any event, you know, regardless of what the embargo says. But when it comes to natural gas, I think Russia is really in the driver's seat when it comes to getting what it wants. There's really very limited room for a lot of European customers to get nat gas in other ways and also to get it from Russia without effectively propping up the ruble. So I think for now, Russia is really in the driver's seat when it comes to all this. And I don't think that there's going to be uh, an easy way around uh, the power position uh, that Russia seems. They got about six months to figure it out before it gets real cold again. Yeah, pretty much. David, thank you, my man. Appreciate these conversations. The voice that you guys were listening to is David Tawil. He's co-founder of ProChain Capital, a multi-strategy crypto asset fund covering the entire ecosystem of the burgeoning asset class with deep experience in crypto assets, token mining, venture capital, programming, and asset management. David has a managed hedge funds for more than 10 years and has earned a JD degree from the University of Michigan Law School. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment for the last hour. Fault Lines. Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. And Manila Chan. Good show today. Really spirited, high energy. I love it. And look, we still like each other after we disagree. Shocking. 
Who knew you could do that? Who knew? I'm right. <laughs> like, do I have to cancel you or you cancel me? I hope or? not. I, I hope that's not the way it goes. Look, man, I I think, you, I don't know if See, you've been here discourse for Discourse is important. Discourse is important and I love it. When we, we, use, we have people here for like um, NATO and stuff like that, I get excited about that stuff. Like when we were bringing, like, cause one of, we've had people on here who are like pro-NATO. And oh, it's, okay. oh God, I love those conversations. Oh, in Physically in here? Oh, no, no, they weren't physically. Oh. It was like on the phone and stuff like, like that. Like I said, it's a different vibe when somebody's in. Yeah. Oh, like I love those. I love those. Because it's like, for me, it's like, if I am right, I should be able to make my point. Or I should be able to make that argument. And this isn't like your own mainstream media where you're going to sandbag the person. Nonsense. Right. It's an honest, legitimate, contextual conversation. It's a conversation. Exactly. And I love those. I love those. I, I think this is what's lacking in media nowadays. Because yeah. you can't go to CNN and hear nothing but an echo chamber. Right. You go to Fox in the other direction, nothing but an echo chamber. There's nobody that's going to disagree with anybody. Right. Not in any, any real way. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, no, not even any disagreement. When was the last time you saw anybody disagree with anybody on, let's say, Fox? I mean, Alan Combs, <laughs> when he, but I mean, rest, God rest his soul. Yeah. But really, when was the last time somebody disagreed with anybody on yeah. any of the networks? You would get a classic Democrat, Republican, Disagreement, but nothing in any real contextual, you know, this is affecting the world and everything else on main issues. No, because yeah, they just agree. You can't have conversations anymore. And that is what I'm saying about from the first hour, from the seven o'clock hour, is that the importance of media and the boiling frog and how we have been conditioned, and I would say groomed, because this was deliberate. Groomed is right. I like this. This is deliberate. We've been conditioned and groomed to start being so sensitive about everything to the point that conversation is too far. Is yes, debate is too far. Having differing thoughts, different opinions is tr more evidence of tribalism. Yeah. You don't think like me, therefore I hate you. Now I have to destroy you and I have to label you as evil. That means to your core, your fundamental person, who you are, you are evil. And you must be canceled. Right. Not yeah. just, not just. oh, Jamaral has a different opinion than me. Cool. Want to go get Starbucks? Yeah. It's not that. That's that's how it was yeah. when we were kids, right? Yeah. Like, and, and you know what? Children were very good at that. Children were, are very good at, you know, you shove each other when you're on the field or whatever you're playing. And then, you know, the school bell rings again. You go back in the classroom. You're fine. Yeah. You got to correct them. And you got to be like, hey, little Johnny. Don't, Don't do, do that. that. Right. right. But, then, <laughs> right. but then they're fine. Then kids yeah. are fine and they play with each other the next recess. Yeah. And they're fine. And somewhere in the course of adulthood, we have been groomed and conditioned to believe that Johnny and Jimmy hate each other because they wear different color shirts. They think differently. They're from different neighborhoods. Their skin is different. They're whatever. Yeah. We're conditioned by the media. The media conditions us to think that way, that we, that our differences are bad. Yeah. Differences are not bad. Yeah, they're just differences. They're just differences. It just is. Yeah. And That's it. And all of them aren't equal, right? Right. Like, there's some things where it's like, okay, she disagrees with me on that. Just She's just that way. The other thing is like, okay, that's a little bit more serious. But I got to be honest, most of the people I've been getting along with right-wingers more, it's, it's bizarre. More, like, more than Democrats. Democrats irk the devil out of me. Well, right now, this, yeah. this iteration yes. of Democrats. Yes. Aggravate me to no end. Right. I used to work at a Democratic radio station, right? And this was, it was for free. It was just, um, do the hobby. thing. 
but yeah, it was kind of like a hobby it, before I was working here. And I, those guys were like, oh, Trump, he's going to get arrested. I mean, he was working <laughs> with the Russians. I mean, this is where their head is. Oh, they actually believed. They full well believed it. And it was like, it was like, dude, what do you think that? Where are you getting that from? No, they don't necessarily have the a rationale. talking points from the State Department. It's That's the where points. they got it. Oh, they would say, I would bring up, Obama was using the Espionage Act to lock all of these whistleblowers up. How are you now complaining about Trump? Well, I mean, when Obama used it, those people didn't go through the proper procedures in order right. to whistleblow. It's like, it's dude, are you serious? It's insane. You, the, the, the level of lying that they tell themselves in order to kind of give them this notion that one is somehow separate and distinct from the other, it's astonishing. It is self-delusional like nobody's business. And yet, that's the way they function. When they're only talking to each other, you don't even have to go there, right? It's like, Tulsa Gabbard, she's clearly a Russian plant. And all of them would agree. Yeah, do, you, do you know when she threw her hat in the ring in 2016, I happened to already be on air on RT America Where are you? At, that, Where are you? at that time. And so I just, I mean, I could see the monitors of yeah. all the other channels. So they hadn't announced it yet. So I I happened to have an, a, a, just a moment to break that news. So I break the news first, right? Immediately, the other networks picked up that I said that they used, NBC used my face from my set to say that because I knew it first, because I knew it, I broke it. I just broke it first. Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, it showed up on my iPhone. This is not a Kremlin-approved iPhone. Like this, because I broke it, they used it to use me. To hit her. To hit her, to say that, see, she's Kremlin, and a Kremlin wow, agent, Tulsi Gabbard, because RT America broke the news first. How did they know? Well, the magic of an iPhone. Yeah. The magic of cell phones. It's like Chelsea Gabbard put out a notice that she was joining the night. I just read she the notice. a press yeah. release and I read it from the AP and I happened to have 30 seconds available in my show to throw it in there. So I just beat you all to the punch. People don't realize the level of stuff that they do. Like they would call for an Dirty. interview here and they would run it. They was like, look, we're going to run this story out of the way. Just letting you know. It's like, well, dude, I need to see the story before I can comment on the story. And it, it's stuff like that. Like, it's just bizarre, bizarre stuff that they do behind the scenes. But that's how that's that works. so aggravating. I can't. Wow, that sucks. Just that they so y'all know, that's how that works. And that's how. So I became somehow part of the Tulsi yes. Gabbard proof that she is a Russian agent. Just for reporting the news right. that came up. Like, 30 seconds before other people or it's a like, minute before. Hillary Clinton is going to join the race. It's like, oh, clearly Hillary Clinton is a Russian plant. I right, mean, because Manila said it. Yeah. How weird is that? How weird is that? The, that is the so worst weird. part was seeing my face on the NBC's, like, website and being, and they used my... Likeness in order to hit a political opponent. They used me as a tool to hurt somebody's credibility. They used you as a prop. Yeah. That was like, I mean, that's not the worst. The worst part is what happened to Tulsi. But it is still crappy. It's massively crappy to basically be used as an object in, the, in that particular way. And, and from there on, that's when the whole State Department, oh, Russia gate, Russia, 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 just quadrupled from that instant. Aggravating, yeah. man. That's very aggravating. Yeah. It's like being in hostile territory. Yeah. Um, we, get, we get to headlines. Yeah, let's get to headlines. All right, right. Let, let's get to that real quick. Uh, national news, domestic news. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has signed a bill that would ban books and any teachings that suggest the U.S. is inherently racist among 
other race-related concepts. He says, these bills ensure all of our state and nation's history is taught accurately because here in Georgia, our classrooms will not be pawns of those who want to indoctrinate our kids with their partisan political agendas. He said that during the signing ceremony on Thursday. Uh, then some sad news is an American has been killed in Ukraine. A young man by the name of Willie Joseph Cancel, just 22 years old. He is He was a U.S. private military contractor. His mother, Rebecca Cabrera, told CNN that he wanted to go fight alongside the Ukrainian forces. And he was paid for that, we should note, because he was a private military contractor. She said, quote, he wanted to go over there because he believed in what Ukraine was fighting for and he wanted to be a part of it, to contain it over there. So the fighting didn't come here. That's what this young man believed, was that the fighting, he was doing that there to protect his family here in America. And so that his brethren, other U.S. soldiers, wouldn't have to be involved in it. So that was his logic to why he went there. He he believed that the war might come here. So he went into Ukraine in a conflict that he knew nothing about in order to murder Clearly. Russians and ends up getting canceled himself. No pun intended. That's that tomorrow <laughs> but yes this is a, a young dude that clearly did not have a grasp on foreign policy and what was happening and was afraid that I don't know Vladimir Putin would come here or reality he's 20 something years old but getting involved the, into a war that is the media getting into his brain yes. convincing him that he thought the war was going to come here yeah that so, death is on their conscience that is the media yeah. That's the media's fault. And internationally, a senior U.S. military officer has identified China as a focal point for the Navy, citing the phenomenal growth of Beijing's military and its ambitious goals for the years ahead. Speaking at an event hosted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, on Thursday, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday called, quote, for a whole-of-government approach to deterring China arguing the country is challenging the U.S. through all instruments of their national power. Then the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, who we've been talking about lately, has now accused Australia of hypocrisy today, saying that Canberra should have been more transparent with other Pacific nations when signing the AUKUS Pact. I guess that was a surprise to them. The... New Honera-Beijing security deal of secrecy is, I guess, why he's like, hey, you guys didn't warn us about AUKUS, so why should I tell you about yeah. Beijing? It's sovereign nation. I guess. All right, yeah. And then at least 42 people were injured in recent clashes near Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. The Palestinian Red Crescent has reported, noting that 22 of those had injuries that required Going to the hospital, Red Crescent expects more clashes to occur in Jerusalem and the West Bank today because today is the last Friday of Ramadan. Israeli police said that order has been restored after those morning clashes and that the worshipers can now enter Temple Mount freely. And then over to tech news, Donald Trump has marked his glorious comeback to social media by posting finally on his own app, Truth Social, 
for the first time ever, the former president shared a picture of himself holding a cell phone with his Mar-a-Lago estate in the background. And he captioned or truthed. If it's if Twitter is tweeted, then he truthed. I'm back. Hashtag Kofi B. Oh, he's, he's back somewhere. He'll be back on Twitter too. Then Earth Science. It seems that while the blue whale right now may currently be the largest creature on Earth, it does not hold that title for biggest animal of all time anymore because scientists have unearthed the remains of an ancient ichthyosaur, which they claim could be the largest animal that ever lived on the planet. The huge marine creature was identified from fossils of three different ichthyosaur, ichthyosauruses, ichthyosaur. I think you nailed it. I butchered that name. Well, I don't know the plural. Ichthyosaur, ichthyosauruses? Ichthyosauruses. No, dinosaurs, ichthyosaurs? Dinosaurs. Ichthyosaurs. Yeah. Ichthyosaurs. It was three different ichthyosaurs that they kind of puzzled back together. Uh, which they found massive teeth and massive vertebrae. The fossils were actually dug out of rocks at an altitude that's presently now 9,000 feet or 2,700 meters above sea level in the Swiss Alps. So that's our sea level now. Yeah. But back then... Hard to wrap your head around that. The Alps were apparently underwater. Then Elon Musk has sold about 4 billion bucks worth of Tesla shares since securing that $44 billion deal to buy... Twitter. According to the SEC filings published on Thursday, the Tesla CEO offloaded 4.4 million shares on April 26th and 27th. He now holds just over a measly 168 million shares in Tesla, but in a trust. This day in history, 1945, a day before committing suicide, Adolf Hitler and his betrothed Eva Braun were married. And then I guess the next day, Bye-bye. Murder-suicide. Um, 1968, the musical Hair hits Broadway. 1975, Hubert Van S. takes that famous picture of the helicopter airlift rescue from a Saigon rooftop. 1992, the deadly riots erupt in Los Angeles. I have firsthand memory. And 1997, the Chemical Weapons Convention becomes effective. And that is your headlines for Friday... April 29th, you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. Perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. And it was like immediately. They, they knew. Yeah, they knew. That was the out cue. The music. Because the first time you're like, wait a minute, why didn't I get my out cue? Yeah, what is going on? It took like, <laughs> it took like 30 seconds. Or, or I, was like, like, yeah. I said headlines. Yeah, which is forever in radio time. It's like, ah. Uh, right. Dead air. It's like, okay. Dead it's air. Like, what happened? It's like, this, this is the word. They're looking for that one specific thing. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Dun. That's it. That's it. So let's do this. Let's take a break. In the words of Manila, you're listening to Fault Lines <laughs> with Thomas and Chan. We'll be back in a moment with the one and only Peter Coffin. You're going to enjoy this. We're going to have this conversation about the Ministry of Truth. And I'm going to get into this thing about whether or not the First Amendment will save us on this. I don't think it will. In fact, I think the Ministry of Truth was there to get around the First They're gonna Amendment. They're going to kill it. They're going to kill it. They're going to kill it. Back in a moment. Fault Lines.
Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. Slam into that rumble button, of course. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. We've had a ton of callers, and we'll be taking calls again at 945. But... Let's go into this ministry of truth, ministry of truth. Now, this is what people have basically been calling this new disinformation governance board. And as I made the point earlier today, all of the lies that the media has admitted, admitted to coming out with and carrying from the U.S. government with that ministry of truth, that disinformation governance board, would it have called BS on any of that stuff? And if not, what is the point of this board? To have a conversation about this. We're joined with the one and only Peter Coffin. Peter Coffin is a video essayist, very important documentaries, a podcaster, PACD, author of Custom Reality and You, and his latest book, Cancel Culture, Mob Justice, or Society of Subscriptions, is out right now. Perfect. Perfect. I, I told you, perfect guy for this. Relatable humor and a commitment to everyday people keeps the perspective fresh, fun, and most importantly, sharp. Peter Perfect person to talk to this morning. How you doing? That is an aptly titled book. Yes, it is. Perfectly timed book. So let me actually, what was the, and well, let's go there for a moment. What was your motivation for writing this book? I think I, I can, you know, get into the headspace. <laughs> but what was the thought around this book? What was the thing that got you to say, you know what? This book needs to be created right Which now. Which one, cancel book. culture or custom reality? Uh, actually, we could talk about both, to be honest. But the cancel secondary culture. one. I was yeah. going to say cancel culture. That's what cancel because culture. Because we're, we're, we're living in that cancel culture. Uh, well, cancel culture, I think, is a dynamic that's kind of the imposition of, like, the, not necessarily the exact real dynamics of the free market, but the ideological dynamics that we're sort of told are the free market onto uh, sort of social spaces. Like a lot of the canceling and whatnot is about following, unfollowing, blocking, likes, retweets, et cetera, metrics, more or less kind of uh, stand-ins for currency. And I think that a lot of it is really, I, I mean, it, I think it does come down kind of to a subscription dynamic. A cancellation campaign is a, it's a marketing campaign to unsubscribe from somebody and, and be morally righteous and, and uh, I just feel like nobody's really framing it as that. So that was why I came out with that book. And uh, the documentary that that book is actually based on, it's a, it's a short book. It's not a long book, but it's adapted from the script for my documentary, which is also titled the same thing. That'll be coming out uh, within like the next month and a half. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that it's a framing that's really important to get out there. Because I think it's it's something you can re relate back to capital ownership, et cetera. Like you can't cancel Jeff Bezos versus you can cancel that guy who was cheating at marathons and ended up committing suicide. We That's talked grisly. about the, the woman that ran the Boston Marathon that was a parent. Remember we were talking about it last week? Yeah. There was a woman that cheated the Boston Marathon. She was like the right. first woman winner, I That's guess. That's right. In the 90s or 90s. Yeah, we were trying to figure out how she did that. 
Like, how did, you know, she was able to pull that off in order to cheat in the marathon. I mean, it was on legs, you know, they were walking. Um, but no, but... Cheat now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, right? No, that's a really good point. I love the way that you appropriate that. Like, the way that you think about that. That basically our economic system is being grafted over our social interactions in a weird way. And where, like you said, it's not a monetary or economic thing, even though kind of towards at some point it becomes economic if you can basically eliminate the income sources. Let's say like Alex Jones, for example, where you basically eliminate his income sources, eliminate his ability to kind of do a show and then have lawsuits in order to kind of gut him further. So there is a economic component to it, but more so to the point, the social currency aspect of it is fascinating. This is a black mirror thing, right? Where, you know, the person you have to get likes and likes are, are grafted onto the society and the way that you deal with people and you'll be ostracized if you don't get enough likes and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I'm glad you went that route with it because that's a really interesting way. And you're right. I haven't necessarily heard anybody talk about it in that particular lens. Yeah, I think that works. Uh, I mean, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think that it's, 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 it's just important to get it out there, at least in, in terms of consideration. But I think it also... It's like you said, it does come back to economics eventually because it is ultimately a question of class who owns like the freedom of the press, for instance, is uh, it, it's it's the only guaranteed to those who own the press, you know, and that I think pretty well segues into the disinformation government's board as well, because I mean, we're ultimately talking about the exact same issue here. Well, let's get into that. The Ministry of Truth. That's basically what it's it is. It's here now. It's here now. I mean, officially here. The NDAA that Obama passed, uh, forget the exact year, but it was just before he went out of office, basically put in, people were calling it the Ministry of Truth. This sounds like a literal Ministry of Truth. That was nothing. Yeah, that was nothing. <laughs> this is it. Um, that, that basically allowed people, the government to propagandize to the public itself, I guess, in official capacity. But in this case, what is your take on this? I mean, this seems like dramatically bad. When I opened up this morning, um, for the monologue, I kind of pointed out that article right here. In a break with the past, U.S. Is, is using intel to fight info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. And the article basically goes through it, basically said the government has been lying for months. They use every euphemism in the world to deal instead of just saying, look, the government has been lying and we've been carrying those lies. And so if that's true, which they've just admitted to, then what is the disinformation board going to be doing? The disinformation board wouldn't have called BS on any of those stories that they were basically lying about. So what is the point of this? What's their role? Yeah, what's their role? Well, I mean, the disinformation government, like a lot of what we've seen in terms of conversations of disinformation and misinformation, like uh, when Joe Rogan was a big, uh, a big topic of conversation a couple of months back before uh, the whole Russia thing really kicked off. Uh, there was a lot of talk about um, whether or not misinformation and disinformation can uh, actively harm society. And I think that that's sort of where they've managed to get a lot of a foothold, but then they've managed to accelerate it with uh, this, the Ukraine stuff. I, I, if you recall, the there was an article in the New York Times that was about how more or less Ukraine was like seeding these stories that are not true, but it's okay because it's like, it's helping morality of Ukrainian people and troops. And it's like, I, 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 they're talking about Ukraine winning the information war and... Uh, they have the most likes, Peter. They got the most likes, obviously. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and how do you get the most likes, though? Like, bring it right back to the economic element of it. 
who owns the platform, who owns, who has the resources to push a story further than let's say me. <laughs> it's like if I get on, on Twitter and I say something, um, not only am I an individual, I can much easily, more easily be hidden away by either reply ratioing it or tweeting it. But I can also, I also don't have the resources to advertise. Like you can promote tweets. You can promote, um, you can even just buy likes straight up. Um, I don't, I don't personally, like most individuals like myself don't have the resources to do things like that on, on uh, the, the, especially on the kind of scale that um, we're talking about here. But that's exactly it. They get the most likes. They're regarded as real. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a free marketization of what truth is, except the thing that everybody always just neglects to mention in, in a free market. And I, I'm using the, the term free market a little liberally here because it's more or less an ideology. Uh, I think people really look at it like, um, I believe in the free market. It's more of a sort of a deity in some ways. But when they talk about market dynamics, they're never talking about who owns the majority share in the market. It's always a very small number of people, companies, often institutionalized finance capital. And um, those people are actually the ones that are making the decisions. Like they hold the most resources. They push, they're able to push their, like um, for instance, GE owns, MSNBC. So is MSNBC going to say something that directly contradicts GE's interests in uh, the, the war because they are war contractors in Ukraine? No, they're not. Uh, I mean, either, either it's a direct order that's handed down through memos by uh, you know whoever is running things, or it's just an incentive that's sort of unspoken between people at MSNBC. The disinformation governance board is not like people always think of the state as a separate entity from capital. But, um, you know, going back to Lenin, the state is it's an apparatus that's intended to uphold the contradictions of class society. It is more or less something that works in the interests of capital. And and here um, the interest of capital is is to be able to propagate information in the way that benefits it, in the way that uh, you know creates the most division, creates the least uh, scrutiny, and generally keeps people away from criticizing or voicing opinions or protesting or withholding labor, or just generally keeps them away from the actual conflicts going around uh, going on in the world that their interests are are heavily invested in. Uh, you you brought up a good point that, for example, GE owns MSNBC and a number of other things. Uh, there's only a small number of companies that actually own all the mass media that we see across this country now, whether it's print. And nowadays, when I say print, we got to include online, uh, the stuff on the TV, the stuff on the radio. But no one seems to be paying attention to who the journalists air quotes, journalists are because back in the day, journalism was not a lucrative field. This is, I mean, my dad, I mean, I'm I'm a child of the 80s. So in the 90s, there there were no women that looked, much less women, that looked like me in the world of media. There was Connie Chung, right? And to my dad's point, he said, what are you going to do if you want to major in this, in in the 90s, you want to major in this in college, what are you going to do? 
wait for Connie Chung to die? Because, I mean, yeah, it sounds morbid, right? It sounds morbid. My late father said that. Oh, yeah. But but he brought up a point of, you know, that, that she was the token Asian at the time, and, and that's all that existed for women that look like me. But but traditionally, journalism is a job that doesn't really pay well. You kind of, you know, pull yourself by the bootstraps and you paste paychecks together and you are nitty gritty on the ground. You are the fourth estate. But today, the type of people that go into this field are not those people like me coming from working class communities in the hood. Absolutely. They are kids that go to Harvard and Stanford and they're, you know, they've, They've uh, had had internships on Capitol Hill. There, that is a certain. If you guys don't know, this is a certain type of kid cut from a certain type of cloth. If you are interning on Capitol Hill, those are the same kids now that grow up to say, "I want to be a journalist because the big paychecks are there, the big money." Look at Rachel Maddow; she's raking in millions and millions of dollars a month. <laughs> these are not the same types of kids that, that were like me that were working class and you're digging for a story. Yeah. These are the people that are going to parrot the talking points from Capitol Hill from which they had just interned five years prior. And now they're raking in millions of dollars in contracts on MSNBC, on CNN, on Fox. What do you say to that, Peter, that, that the, the, the disparity of what used to be the type of person that goes into journalism and the type of person that's there now? Well, I mean, I think that it's attributable to the sort of celebrity, um, celebrification or influencerification. I don't really know how you would word that, but I think it, it follows that sort of model. Like years ago, uh, you didn't have somebody who just, I mean, you did have news anchors, but you didn't have superstars sitting behind a desk. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> and not um, and not leaving the studio. Like, like you would have people doing investigative journalism. You wouldn't have people repeating talking points with a nice graph next to their head. Like, uh, it, it's, 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 it's become slick. It's become very recuperated like I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term but recuperation is when something that is it's radical or against the interests of the bourgeois or mainstream ideology um is sort of sucked into that mainstream bourgeois ideology and it's if it's sort of uh, more you know dangerous elements like uh anything that's subversive anything that is it's uh it's it's dangerous to those interests and it's the, the elements that remain are sort of fetishized and, and, and turned into something you can consume. Like you can't, you don't just consume the news. You can consume uh, like the sort of lifestyle of the news. You can consume an aspiration. Colin Kaepernick. This. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Bernie Sanders. Um, and, and, yeah. You can, you can aspire to become Bernie Sanders too. Like it's, it's not, these are all lifestyle tracks that, that implies some form of consumption as well. And to have this sort of, as you said, special type of child uh, who's maybe a, a son or a daughter or, or whatever of a of, of of like a business magnate or or uh, uh, somebody who's important in the government or whatever um, who wants to get into journalism, they're a don't want to attack their parents. They don't want to snoop around their parents' filing cabinets for a story. But b 
they're also kind of consuming this this lifestyle experience of of oh I go to school and I I become uh, this very important person to everybody and everybody comes to me for information and it's it's a, a sort of a symbiotic relationship between institutional power and an individual that uh, it uses consumerism and uses um, more or less state power to kind of go back and forth and and, and dilute what. I mean, it's not just something that's happened to journalism. It's happened to a lot of um, different types of things. Activists in general have become very uh, similar to this, like the NGO industrial complex has done this to activism. But um, it, it's basically become something that, that is, it's, it's, it's a, an image, a consumable image of its former self. And, and that has defanged it entirely. That's such a good point. I love the way you said that. And yeah, Colin Ka- Kaepernick comes to mind. I mean, power throw, taking the knee, and then all of a sudden Nike signs him for the contract. Capitalized on, yeah, cap- on that. Yeah, I mean, it's like you get to live out your Kaepernick image. I, I had no idea this industry could potentially pay the way it does when you look at contracts like Rachel yeah. Maddow's or Sean Hannity's. I got in, I've just always liked writing. And to be honest, I like being a pain in the ass. I like being I like being a thorn in people's side. I just I get a kick out of it. So it, it was the perfect fit for me. Yeah. I liked writing and I liked poking. It's like no idea that you could get forty billion on but how I much had or a no million idea. dollars. Yeah, you're gonna you could be like Rachel Maddow making like thirty million dollars a year. That's nuts. I mean I never out. once Sell out, get paid. That, that's kind of what it is. Peter, we have a caller, actually, um, that has a question related to the conversation. We have Sanchez in Southern California. What's going on, Sanchez? Hey, Sanchez. From Pico. Morning. What? Yes. Come on, homegirl. Good morning. One and all. Well, I have a question for Peter here on the subject of Russian cancellation. Uh, A quick news item here. First of all, I have had my own YouTube channel canceled just because a few few, uh, footage which had the RT little green symbol in there, they were shooting me at a protest march. I was part of the Occupy movement. My entire YouTube channel was taken down just because of that. Point one. Point Two, Caleb Maupin from RT just had his PayPal account canceled. It wasn't just him. Mint Press. Yeah, Mint Press also. Yep. Mint Press did as well. Yeah, potential risk. Now, will the ministry, this ministry of so-called ministry of truth, be so extreme? Will they go back and cancel anything Russian on TV? For example, Pavel Chekhov of Star Trek. Will he potentially be? Uh, Don't say that. <laughs> Well, because of future Russian collaboration will be against the Ministry of Truth, will we be going to that extreme? Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that it depends, because I think the Chekhov uh, sort of symbolizes, I mean, this is getting into media stuff, but I think he sort of symbolizes what happens when uh, a hypothetical future where Russia is sort of absorbed into the Western paradigm. I don't know that they would go that far, but I don't think they need to either. I think that it's more like the disinformation governance board. I actually think is a scarier title than ministry of truth, even because what it's about is, is designating what is um, dangerous and fake rather than what is virtuous and true. So they aren't even really responsible for being correct about anything. They're more responsible for, 
you know, turning people off of certain tracks and keeping them away from them. So I think what we're going to end up seeing is more along the lines of, I think, well, A, what, what we've seen with um, Caleb, I think, and uh, Mint Press is a bit of a preview of how they can, I don't know that it's directly related to the Ministry of Truth, so to speak, but uh, I think that it is, it's, it's a preview of the types of things that you're going to see, receive, a, like, flack and difficulty, and um, I don't know that you will necessarily see them directly go after anybody, but they are going to create I think an image where, I mean, Caleb and myself for that matter have, have always been um, sort of looked at as uh, outcasts and, and our positions are often very misrepresented in what you would call traditional left circles. Um, I, I even, even when, before I knew Caleb, uh, I was often the quote unquote renegade in the sort of bread tube area on YouTube. And I would say things, that they would all kind of get uppity about and, and, and try to try to deal with. And then eventually they, they just uh, sort of dumped me altogether when I was saying like, it doesn't really matter who you vote for in, in the election. Ultimately Biden is going to be very similar to Trump. And well, look who was right about that. But um, I think, I don't know. I, I think that it's going to be more um, directly, contradicting um, with like a lot of power, any kind of information that delegitimizes the mainstream narratives as opposed to just outwardly putting forward a sort of like censorship agenda. I think it's going to work in a, like censorship is much more sophisticated now in a social media era than it was a yep. uh, hundred years ago. Like it's more about putting out alternate information and making it much louder than it is about just outwardly removing. I mean, they do still outwardly remove things, but like the, for instance, like the the little messages that they put underneath tweets that say like this this is may contain false information as verified by X blank blank source, and you know we saw that literally be nonsense multiple times now in terms of like, can you get COVID without or after you've been vaccinated or uh, to go all the way back to the, the mask uh, controversy right at the start of COVID. Hunter Biden laptop. Good. Our mask. They literally admitted to it like being kind of a lie so that they could consolidate um, all of the, the various masks and, and, and think they were the shortage. They weren't prepared for it. So that they, they lied about, whether or not masks were effective or not. Spin. Ouchie. Yeah. 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 Disney at one point is supposed to be uh, canceling certain characters or re-editing their films. That's the only reason why I feel that, uh-oh, goodbye, Pavel Chekhov. Wouldn't he be inserted with a Ukrainian officer instead? Oh, man. Sanchez, thanks for the call, man. Um, Peter, See you again, Sanchez. one of the things I wanted to get to has to do with this. Is this a way to make governmental power more diffuse as a way of going around the First Amendment. Now, the reason why I'm asking that, is this a situation where tech companies, everything else, the Biden administration clearly has been working with the various media companies and tech companies. Okay, so there's that. Is it just something where they don't necessarily want to put themselves out of the government saying this, 
No, it's this disinformation board that's saying this. And so when Twitter needs to go to somewhere or Facebook needs to go to somewhere or Instagram or whatever these other organizations need to go, they can say, well, the government disinformation board says this is disinformation. And that in and of itself is enough as a reason and justification for it. isn't this where Section 230 needs to be revised Uh and revisited? Because now that you've actually got a board, who says—I mean, does that—you bring up a good point. I mean, is Elon Musk's new ownership of Twitter, he's going to have to go through this board? Does I mean, be for example, if you go to the UAE, they they basically have a we'll call it the Ministry of Media. Before any magazine can even get published, oh, do you have to go through them? You have to go through them. They have to see your dummy copy first. Yeah. So is that what that this thing this fourth branch going to look like? I mean, it very well could be. Um, like they've. It claims that the the disinformation governance board is going to be focusing on like um, countering misinformation uh, related to irregular migration and Russia, which Russia is such a generalized topic at this point. But I think like when you establish this kind of power and you establish this kind of like uh, process in terms of uh, you know, the government has the ability to step in and say, well, that's misinformation. We do X, Y, and Z with it. I don't think that it's absurd to assume that these large media companies may have to go through these. Like, I, I don't know exactly, because again, like uh, these platforms are largely user-generated content. So uh, we again get back to the question of, do they end up as a publisher or as a, a platform because if they're just a platform, they're just utility. <laughs> Sorry, if they're just a utility, it makes it so their um, their publishing of this information shouldn't really be subject to this kind of a board. So that also, in my opinion, like if we're bringing two thirty into it, it it it, it gives. Certainly, like the the people in control, the government and the probably the highest capital, the largest of the uh, institutionalized finance capital that owns a lot of these companies, um, incentive to to move towards the okay, we accept the idea that we're platforms and we accept the idea that we're aggregating these things um, because that gives us now actual control over this. Which I don't know really what the implications are of that. Like if they actually would follow through on that, because up until now that's been their defense for for not getting um, in trouble for a lot of what users say. Uh, is the is the goal now to just say forget it? Like we don't really care about protecting that because we're just going to start removing what users say and we'll be fine that way. I don't know. I like. I think that there's a, a lot at play here, and I think that um, we're 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 at the point where there could, we could be seeing large revisions to Section 230. It depends on you know what their goals are. I think Elon Musk personally, um, he tweeted the other day that um, he wants to implement free speech to the point where it goes to the limits of the law. So if the law is that he has to go to a board. To you know, approve his practices. Um, like he's going to be ostensibly like 
following that. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like this sounds like stuff. It's also just really interesting that this, this comes up just days after he buys Twitter. I think that, that that's just such an interesting coincidence to me because he's talking about it. Yeah, he, he, he's buying Twitter because the purpose uh, like it's 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 been bought, it's been owned by these larger companies like Vanguard and BlackRock, institutionalized finance capital that have very specific standards that are very uh, oriented towards promoting the sort of finance and global capital agenda, and 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 stuff that contradicts that has has ultimately been what has gotten these various forms of sophisticated censorship we were talking about earlier. So. I wonder, like, is do they see Elon doing that as kind of a? I mean, I don't necessarily trust a, a, a single person having a switch on what is free speech and what is not. But at the same time, he's he's trying to turn the switch on currently. Um, whereas this, this ultimately, it really has been a censorious environment on Twitter for quite a while now. So my thinking is, are they? Detecting the idea that there may be more people, uh, not necessarily unilateral individual billionaires, but maybe like certain uh, cabals, you could say even like just groups of billionaires working in concert to sort of quote unquote liberate these platforms and uh, then that sort of manufacturing capital, uh, which is more oriented towards free speech. Like uh, Elon is a he manufactures cars and rockets like uh, it's sort of part of the ideology there even though he's in some ways also quite left and progressive um i think i don't know maybe they detect some kind of a a resistance in ideology and they're wanting to now clamp down on that like maybe they're just asserting control isn't this where the danger then comes in for the government for the biden administration is that now that you do have the so-called ministry of truth right this this new arm of the government and and if our first amendment says that there shall be no censorship by the u.s government they are the u.s government if they get involved i mean wouldn't we potentially see lawsuits at the yin yang I would hope so, but at the same time, the um, the First Amendment is is Congress shall make no law respecting or prohibiting or abridging. Like in some ways, I think that the First Amendment is written to kind of say that's not my department. Right. <laughs> and I think it kind of it does it does it's a, a certain amount of work keeping the liability off the government for the government doing things. Like if they make laws that are not necessarily respecting prohibiting or um, abridging, but rather do like what I said, this sort of more sophisticated censorship where it is, it's about deprioritizing. Um, like there's no, like that's clearly not a dynamic outline in First Amendment. So if they're doing things that like technically allow stuff to be published, but like nobody can see it, is that something that the First Amendment even covers? I don't know. Tree falls in a forest, nobody hears it, doesn't make a sound, basically. Somebody writes a post, nobody sees it. Was a post ever written? Peter, thank you, my man. I appreciate this. Great conversation around this issue. The voice that you guys were listening to is the one and only Peter Coffin. Peter Coffin is a video essayist. He has very important documentaries, podcaster, 
That's his P-A-C-D, author A Custom Reality of You, and his latest book, Cancel Culture, Mob Justice, or A Society of Subscriptions, um, is out right now. We have relatable humor and a commitment to everyday people, keeps the perspective fresh, and most importantly, sharp. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we'll be taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we've come to this last nine minutes of the show. The number is 202-521-1320. And we have two two regulars. Oh, the one and only Tarif. And, and we got Mark calling back from New York. I hope he's figured out his volume issue. So oh, we'll, right, we'll right, get to right. Mark. We'll get to but, Mark after Tarif. Tarif. Let's go to Tarif. What's going on, man? Thank y'all for taking my call. I have three comments. First, I have to say free drill and signs. First comment is dealing with um the you know, ruble is at 71 to the U.S. dollar. is actually strong since March 2020. Second comment, I'm trying to th- drop on people threads on Twitter. Um, uh, Apparently, I'm still, the algorithm is still working against me. and still shadow banning me. Um, Sometimes I'm lining up first on people's Twitter or maybe in the top 10, and within a matter of a minute, my my tweet either disappear off the th- thread or it be pushed down. So, yes, that needs to be fixed. My last comment, and um, it seems like Belarus is start a, um, starting to send equipment to the Polish border, you know. So we'll have to just see what's going on with that. You know, because, you, you know, there's already rumors that Ukraine is going to go into, I mean, excuse me, Poland is going to go into Ukraine, but how could the, I mean, now they're going to have Belarusian troops on their border now, so. Well, that's, yeah, like we said, that's a rumor. There's yeah, nothing to back that up. That's not verified through any any sources from the Russian side or the Belarusian side. So we got to hang on to that. Don't hang your hat on that. Yeah. Also, there are weapons, um, they're having some kind of military training exercises. I know um, Poland is in huge training exercises. So it's very possible that Belarus is, who knows? And it does all sorts of things that are going on. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. I, I, I forgot to say, it's, it's rumored. I was, seeing, I was seeing video of people shooting vi- uh, armored vehicles going down the road, supposedly in Belarus. So uh, I'm assuming, I mean, it's a speculation that they're putting troops on the border with Poland. You know, so we'll see. Tarif, thank you, my man. I always appreciate those calls. We have one more. And yeah, Mark, right? Mark. In New York. That's right. Mark from New York. What's going on, Mark? Back again. Uh, it's, a, it's a great show when you have so many topics of discussion that it's hard to hear which comment, which jump it and make most relevant. <laughs> right. That is good, right? It's like, all right, there's a lot I want to hit on impact. What's going on? Yeah, you, started with, you started with policing and then you moved to real estate and finance. <laughs> I just loved it. Should be the top drive time uh, radio program. So that if that's the one thing I need to say is you should be because you cover a wide base and you do a good job. Thank you. Uh, just want to give you kudos for that. You guys are Thanks, Mark. Um, but specific to the point one, hit on the policing part. I, and particularly when people talk about New York, 
in regards to the policing, it is a paramilitary troop, uh, organization. So you have structure and top down. We have organizational challenges as a society as to assuming that the top knows what's best. Secondly, they're well paid as an entity, okay? In fact, by doing overtime, most police in New York, across the board, except the barely upstate, make over $100,000, and they want to get that overtime, and I know this very intimately, okay? With regard to the biases and the community policing, yes, more needs to be done, but the problem starts in the prejudice of society is that basically I see you, I don't see you. If I didn't mm-hmm. work with you, I didn't go to school with you, mm-hmm. other, and then you, the society and social media depicts you as like the guy who said, I see black men on the street. That alone suggests that that's a bias. There are, here's the thing in cities, anonymity is increasing. We don't know each other. So Bingo. they can do crime and get away with it. So that's part of the element what the police have to deal with. It's not, and then you have poverty. So we have to Bingo. those issues on a structural basis. But again, we start with people come to these jobs in all ways with biases and prejudices about what the person is going to be like. We're told we're educated. We got a big job to do, and policing is a big is a problem, a part of because it has the instrument of death involved. You're directly dealing with good. So that is where the outrage I get, Jamal. I, I'm about that. The outrage comes when you see a disproportionate number of particular populace being set upon by the people you pay to do the job. That is why the the importance of community policing is that the cops that serve the community live in the damn community. You be a part of that community so you understand the community, you understand the people. Well, because of spatialism, counties and so forth, we have cities are concentration of all the society ills as well as the goodwill. And that's what we have in challenge of urban planning. Mm-hmm. And that all of that comes with it. Back, the other second with the real estate issue in terms of the spatialization of people working from home. The commercial markets will collapse. I know that again intimately. There's a reason for it. That said, we're going to see an increasing uh, cost of interest rates because they're going to, the banks are going to try and make up for those losses. Oh, sure. They want you to get back into work because they have to, have to basically figure out how we're going to pay for all this real estate we've built up. Yes, we got residential, we got commercial, and the offices, market, and along with retail. We have, again, because of the, what we call disruption in both retail and so forth, as, as well as in media, this is causing smaller concentrated organizations. We're shifting in, the, in terms of society. This is phenomenal. It's a worth the study, but the challenges are there. So I'll leave it there. That's a lot to cover, but you guys did a great job this morning. I loved it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank I appreciate you, that. Absolutely appreciate it. We have one more. Jim from Gaithersburg, Merlin. Local. Local. Yeah, more or less. How's it going, Jim? Yeah. Got about one minute. Great, Carol. Okay, one minute. You know, I typically listen to you on with an app on my phone to listen to Sputnik. Now, since yesterday, I can't get through anymore. I get a, when I put your call letters in, your, your frequency, I, I get a, a Spanish music station. And I tried it with several other apps, and it's the same thing. And some of the apps, by the way, that I downloaded have forcibly removed your channel. Really? Oh, yeah. You need to check it out because uh, I'm feeling like the walls are closing in and, and we're getting 
censorship from every direction. It, it, I'm ready to dig out my shirtway radio. It, it does feel that you way, don't it? You might need to. You might need to, Jim. Yeah. I mean, this seems to be where we're going. We're going to move this to ham radio. <laughs> we're sending um, Morse code to various people. Right. Um, but look, guys, great show today. I want to thank week. all of you. I want to thank our producer, our engineers. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. And I want to thank all of you. All the rumblers. That's right. Uh, all the rumblers and everything else. Guys, you all have a phenomenal weekend. Have a phenomenal day. We'll see you next week see on Monday. Monday. Call lines. 